Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste careen around a corner very dangerously, not looking the way, and collide with one another with this sound effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for IGN occasionally. Uh, I write for whoever will have me, frankly. And he is disenchanted with the sound effects. Well, well that hurts my feelings a little, but I'll live. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, we are going to be reviewing a bunch of movies this week. Uh, in fact, we're going to be reviewing a bunch, a bunch of movies we're this week. We're reviewing like nine movies this week. And the mm-hmm. reason why is because we usually release our, our podcast on Monday. And last week, uh, well, actually still, mm. there's a hell of a lot going on in the world. And it, Last week there was a lot going on. It's still going on. It's still going on. In fact, actually, mm. I think we, I just heard news that like today had the largest like protest in L.A. Mm. Like so far, like 10,000 people uh, in the streets. L.A., and, uh, D.C. as well. Had, yeah. Had the biggest protest yet. Um, yeah. The, the nationwide and, in fact, international protests uh, have completely redirected everyone's attention to, frankly, where it needs to be mm-hmm. uh, on the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the ancillary movements therein. Uh, this podcast fully supports Black Lives Matter, so we mostly took a break throughout the week. We had a few episodes in the can. We released those. We put out a couple like later in the week, just in case anyone needed a mental health break. Um, but uh, as we still support Black Lives Matter 110%. Uh, but th- it's kind of piling up, and we can't really do like a six-hour podcast next week. So <laughs> I, we do need to we do need well, to start. Uh, you know, here's the thing: we probably could. Uh, well, if, yes, of if, course if we you, could. If you really if you really unleashed us and you gave us enough caffeine, we could make it through. But you probably couldn't, dear listeners. That would be insufferable. You so have we're going stuff to, to do. We do have to modulate here and there. So we yeah. do have uh, eight, nine films re- we're reviewing this week. Uh, eight new releases and, of course, our monthly star, our weekly streaming club, uh, in which we, this week we are reviewing one of the more amusing turkeys of the early 2000s. Uh, what a what a treat that was. It's amusing. Uh, I'll I'm say s- that now. I still can't believe our patrons voted for it. Over <laughs> on Patreon.com slash Critical Claim Network, you get to vote for the streaming club movie every single week. You never pick what I think you will pick. I think we had Bad Boys 2 on there, and they didn't vote for it. Mm. I thought that was a slam dunk. I thought that was just like, oh, Bad Boys 2, well. Let's force Whitney to watch that for the first time. No, it's well, lost one, in a landslide. One of the few uh, Michael Bay films I haven't seen, and yeah, yeah. people aren't forcing me to watch it. So thank you for that. Okay, I was I was looking forward to forcing him to watch it, but that's that's fine. That's mm. fine. We'll we'll do this instead. Uh, but in any case, yeah, uh, this week we're doing all these movie reviews. We're we're back, uh, uh, back on the job. Uh, but we do not want people to stop focusing their attentions on Black Lives Matter. We do not want you to stop uh, protesting, protesting safely. Yeah, I was about uh, to say, and yeah. we, we don't want Keep you your masks to, on. to forget that there's also a pandemic still uh, yeah. ravaging the planet. So do protest, do the right thing, do donate to the right causes. Mm-hmm. Do, if you can't afford that, mm-hmm. sign petitions, spread yeah. the word. Uh, uh, do, boost do, the voices. Yeah, do, everything do support do. the voices of of black artists in the world, and uh, but do it safely so you don't spread the pandemic. Yeah, we, uh, we need we need everyone to be around so, so we can vote in November. Yeah, they're, they're, let's let's balance all of this. There's a lot going on, but we can do it. We and, can, and, and we're and doing in, an amazing job. And in the meantime, we can talk about some movies. Uh, yeah. Some of them are really really bad. Uh, one of them, uh, one of my favorites of the year. So uh, there's a couple can, of really good yeah. ones this uh, on this particular episode. I was going to say this week, but we're covering two weeks mm. at once. But there's a couple of at least Whitney saw more than I did. Whitney mm. saw eight new movies. I only got to see four. 
Uh, and boy, does that make me feel like crap. Well, this is two weeks worth, so know, it's four so each week. Regardless, you you really uh, hit the pavement uh, movie-wise, and uh, so you're, you're putting me to shame, and as well you should. Uh, but let's just go, um, I guess, kind of chronologically. Let's start with the movie release last week that I think mm. was the big release last week, even though it was a very tiny release, even though it's a movie that couldn't get like accepted to like any film festivals. Mm. Like you look at the IMDb trivia page for this, and it was like turned down from like Sundance and all kinds of things, and then it was finally released in, at Slam Dance, and it just made its debut. On Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free with an Amazon Prime subscription. Mm -hmm. It is a new low-budget sci-fi film called *The Vast of Night*. Uh, *The Vast of Night* is one of my favorite movies of 2020. *The Vast of Night* is pretty fucking good. It is. I really, really dig it. Really good. Uh, it it starts with a framing device. We have a camera sort of drifting in through a suburban uh, house's window at night, and everything. We don't see uh, any people. It sort of it reminded me of the beginning of the. Uh, TV horror anthology TV show Monsters mm. from like the mid '90s. If you remember, Not Monsters. Really. It, it was. It came in the wake of the success of Tales from the Crypt, along alongside like Tales from the Dark Side. Mm -hmm. Monsters was like the tertiary show in, yeah. in that trifecta. Well, what they're going uh, for is a combination of uh, Outer Limits and the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and yeah. the camera zooms up to this very cool-looking old-fashioned television set where they're watching. Uh, a fake a, a, version. A, it's a Twilight Zone-like yeah. TV program, and it zooms into the picture, and that's where the movie takes place. Uh, and the movie is, it's its set in the 1950s. It is uh, very much in, like, a straight-up War of the Worlds-style uh, alien invasion tale. But on so, a, but but in a very, yeah. very small, like, microcosm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's this really teeny, teeny, <laughs> tiny town, mm -hmm. and it is all told through these very long takes and like distant takes. We don't even get mm. close-ups of the characters and these very natural conversations of people who work in the local radio station. Yeah. So there's a guy who works at a local radio station. He's the late night DJ. He doesn't expect anyone to listen to him tonight because literally everyone in the community, like everyone in the County mm. is packed into the local gymnasium for the big basketball game. So they that, expect that's what this town lives for. Yeah. So everyone is there. Like there's maybe like a dozen people elsewhere in town at all. Mm. So nobody's listening to him. It's a waste of an evening. And also uh, there's a young woman who uh, is working as a switchboard operator, but also not expecting to do anything tonight because everyone's watching the basketball game. Mm. Meanwhile, there are mysterious signals coming in through the radio station as he's playing music and they're trying to figure out what that is, and someone calls into the radio station to say, I've heard that before. I may or may not have been part of a secret government project that may or may not be aliens. And it's all about them trying to unravel the mystery of what is happening in their town over the course of about an hour and a half, two hours. It's most it's practically told in real time. It's not, yeah. but it's practically well, told there, in real time. There's a few a few scenes where we drift out through the TV to sort of remind us of the artifice of this, but then we drift back in and we yeah. live in that world. Uh, it's easy to accept that. I don't think that's a distancing device. No, in fact, I don't think that's, it is. that's a really kind of engrossing way of going about this because it's tapping into an eerie kind of, you know, the Sterling-esque Americana mm -hmm. where everything's a little bit topsy-turvy, but it's told in such a natural way mm -hmm. that it still feels like the real world. So we actually get like two opposite things at the same time. Well, I actually think it goes even beyond mm -hmm. that because on top of everything you just said, which it totally mm -hmm. nails, um, those Twilight Zone episodes, those Outer Limits episodes, were done on a budget. Some were more expensive than others. Some had bigger actors than others, but they were all pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. 
the strength of those stories was the stories themselves. It was the strength of the writing. It was the strength of the performances. Mm. It was, and everything else was trying to make the most of a, a limited budget. Case in point, uh, uh, Nightmare Twenty Thousand Feet, mm. where William Shatner is losing his mind on an airplane because he keeps seeing a man on the plane. The man on the wing of the plane that he keeps seeing looks like crap. It looks like he's covered in shag carpet. Like, it's a stupid-looking monster. I got to see an interview with Richard Matheson once uh, mm-hmm. at, at a screening of The Incredible Shrinking Man at the Cinematheque in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he said he, he really loved... Uh, if, if you were to able to combine the TV and the movie version of uh, Her, Terror at 20,000 Feet, which he mm-hmm. wrote... Yeah. Uh, then he would have the perfect version because mm-hmm. he felt Shatner did it perfectly. He's a regular guy who's slowly going insane. Yeah. Uh, the movie is about a guy who's already insane going even more insane. Yeah, George he, Miller he like cranks that. it up to nine yeah. and occasionally goes to ten in the movie. But, but he said I he, still like it a lot. He said he really liked the monster in the movie because it's this really kind of wicked looking thing with a elongated jaw and white eyes. And, and he said in the... In the TV show, it looked like a panda bear. It's yeah, like, it looks stupid. Yeah. So, like, so when you're set up to watch an old Outer Limits episode or an old Twilight Zone episode, if you're a fan of such things, if you're aware of such things, your mind already goes to a certain charming, low budgety kind of quality where mm. I'm willing to accept a lot and I'm willing to accept that we're going to play a lot of this in dialogue. And then, indeed, that's what a lot of it is. A lot of it is based off of sound. It's um, a lot of it is based off of just hearing people's performances. There are characters, important characters in this movie. We never see their face. It's all just their performances. They're talking over the phone to a radio DJ on a station nobody's listening to in the middle of the night. And it is an uncanny performance. The performances mm. in this are fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, the kids are whip-crack smart yeah, and absolutely... Uh, I, the the young woman is played by Sierra McCormick. Uh, yeah. The young man is played by Jake Horowitz. Yeah, and, and they've got this Howard Hawks ratatat dialogue yeah, that's yeah. so sharp and well written. It's incredible. It it f- but at the same time, it never loses that sense of like eerie otherness. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded very much of like a Spielberg movie. Oh yeah, but it doesn't have that weird kind of exhilarating nostalgia that's all over Spielberg. The thing that he kind of really mastered and uh, yeah. brought to cinema in a big way. Uh, it feels really, yeah. It's like if Howard Hawks did a Spielberg story. Well, actually, what it reminded me of is uh, Spielberg's first movie, which is Lost. Mm. Uh, he his first feature film that he made, and he made it independently, mm. and he made it as a, as a teenager on a budget of like five hundred bucks. Uh, in 1964, it's called Firelight, and it was about alien invasion in a small town, and he mm. eventually mined bits of it for Close Encounters later mm. on. The story goes, Spielberg came to Hollywood with this sucker, like, you know, under his arm, the only print <laughs> under his arm, and he gave it to a producer who said he'd look at it, and then the producer disappeared, and the movie's gone. No! The movie's completely gone. Yeah. It's, I, think, I think maybe a few, like, stills <laughs> exist, but, like, it's dead. Uh, so really, for me... Really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better. So for me, I'm watching, like, I guess there's, like, oh, there's, like, uh, three and a half minutes. That's, mm. like, I think you can see online. It's just a little... Oh, okay. But, like, for me, I feel like... The Vast of Night is kind of like, what did Spielberg make? Let's remake that. <laughs> and it's the kind of movie that, cinematically, there are elements of this, there are elements of the style, and there's a few mm. visual effects that you couldn't have done at the time. But the actual script could have very easily been done in the 50s or mm. 60s. There's a few knowing week winks to the future, mm. but it's mostly set in its period. The thing that I think makes this movie really fascinating is that it one of the ways that it captures the tininess of this town 
Because you could have just like just set it in these rooms and it would have felt very um, claustrophobic. Mm. They they showed the the actual like size of the town right away. We like follow the two protagonists as they walk from the gym mm-hmm. to their places of business, and it takes like five ten minutes. It's a one long shot where they're just interacting, we're meeting their characters, and they're talking about stuff that will be important later. But later on, the camera just sort of drifts away, yeah, and it will drift through the entire town, and you realize that this is. A really tiny place yeah, for a really big story. Really that's long extended takes uh, mm-hmm. where the the camera like floats in through windows. It's Clearly, they're, they're they're cheating a few edits, oh, but sure. it, it all looks like one gigantic long take. And mm-hmm. but in a graceful sort of way, not in a showy way, not in that Alfonso Cuarón so, sort of way. Well, Cuarón uh, sometimes does it with with purpose. I think mm, I the one I, person, I think is just showing off. The person I think is often just showing off is Inoritu. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. With something like Birdman, I'm I'm sort of just like I get it. Just tell the story, man. <laughs> you don't need to do this. I get it. Get it. No edits sort of thing. Thanks, man. I'm mm. good. Like, but uh, but in any case, yeah. Sometimes filmmakers seem like they're showing off. This doesn't seem like they're showing off. It seems like they're trying to make the most of what they have. Mm. But they're doing it, and it's serving the narrative because we're getting a a, a really intimate sense of the location and the characters and their connections to one another and to their community. And even just the floating camera, it's interesting the low angles the camera keeps getting because there's something about it that feels kind of unnatural. Like if they had whipped the camera around and we found out we were following like a UFO or something, I would not have been shocked. Yeah. Because it's got personality. It seems to move with purpose, Mm. like an early Coen Brothers movie. Like uh, like that great shot in Blood Simple where uh, the camera is on a bar and the bar stretches out in front of it. Okay, And yeah. there's someone like... Oh, yeah, yeah, It's okay, an incredible yeah. bit. So, like, the camera is just gliding down the bar, like, towards the back of the frame. I think, like, Dan Hedaya is in the back of the frame. So, they're moving closer to him. Mm. But there's someone, like, asleep, drunk on the bar, and the camera just lightly bounces over him. <laughs> not, not breaking stride, mm. it's just... But it's clearly, like, a joke. Yeah, yeah. A little cinematic joke. And it's great. And this movie is great. This movie mm. is uh, suspenseful. It's eerie. Um, it, and it's it flies right in the face of that stupid show don't tell nonsense. Yep. Uh, show don't show great don't, monologues yeah. in this movie. Show don't tell is you know we've we've talked about it before. It's it's a good a bit of advice for first year year film scoot students. You need to learn to, how to yeah, show not to, tell. That's to, an important uh, skill to develop. To, to think of films uh, visually, to communicate uh, efficiently, essentially. Yeah. Don't but, tell a story through dialogue because you couldn't think of anything else. Tell a story mm. through dialogue because it works better that way. Yeah. And this is mostly dialogue. It almost works as a radio drama. It would be a great radio drama. Uh, yeah. There's there's a, a really wonderful interview later in the film where a woman tells about her. Her experiences, uh, which is you know, just really, really chilling. There's the one that really got me was when uh, the, the young protagonist is at the switchboard and she's just sort of listening mm-hmm. on the headphones and hearing the story, and we just see her face. Yeah, that's that's a radio moment. It's uh, such a confident and assured motion picture. Yeah, yeah. Like it's really like nothing in here feels like a, a a young or new filmmaker who is trying to get noticed. Nothing about them is just sort of just like, hey, I threw in a bunch of blood and gore or whatever like that. No, this is someone who clearly the people behind this movie clearly had a story they wanted to tell were very confident in the way they wanted to tell it because there's no room mm-hmm. to like fix this in the editing room yeah right there's no room for that there's no like oh we can adjust this in post or we'll shoot a quick cutaway the movie isn't structured like that so mm-hmm. it either worked or it didn't and it fucking works 
Seriously, I, I, I'm not sure if it's going to end up on my, like, number one of the year or anything like that, but when mm. the best of the year talk comes around, I will be remembering this film, yeah, and it's four. probably at least going to get a runners-up for me. Nice. Because it's yeah. really exquisite. Um, no, I, I just, I really, it's so my jam. <laughs> like, radio dramas, 50s sci-fi, this is, this is totally up my alley, and I really, really dug it. Well, tell me about another film. This is a, We're going to alternate between films that we both saw and films Whitney saw, since it's mm. half and half. Um, I heard you, or heard you, no one was like recounting Twitter to me, but I saw you on Twitter <laughs> oh. talking about how much you really enjoyed the new Abel Ferrara movie, Tommaso. Oh yeah, uh, Tommaso is the new Abel, Abel Ferrara movie. I, uh, when, I've, I'm on record for saying that I actually really kind of loathe stories about aging artists mourning the, aging white male artists mourning the loss of their libidos, and how, you know, oh no, I'm, I, I can't get laid with hot 20-somethings anymore because now I'm 75 and it's only slightly... Oh no, what slightly, a tragedy. Yeah, it's like, oh god, it's it's so disgusting and it's so... Uh, so it reeks of self-pity. And, you know, like, that goes back to stuff like Death in Venice. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's a long, vast tradition of aging, art, aging male artists writing about how... Well, their libidos just aren't where they used to be and somehow this is the source of grand tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um... This is that story, but I like it this time. Now, <laughs> doesn't have to be up my alley for me to like it. Uh, you know, there are some films that are my jam that I dislike, and this one isn't my jam, and yet I really loved it. Yeah, Abel Ferrara uh, tells the story of a filmmaker who's working on a, a science fiction movie. He's played by Willem Dafoe. Uh, Willem Dafoe is one of the best actors, period. Uh, you know, lately, uh, I think he's completely solidified that. He's yeah. just made really great, interesting choices for the last, like, ten years you know, or so, like, in particular. At Eternity's Gate, he was great. Oh uh, the Florida Project, he was great. I didn't um, even like that the movie. The Lighthouse, he was great. He was great. Yeah. yeah, he's he's just knocking out of the park park, every single time and here he's just doing the same thing because he's really exploring a certain kind of uh kind of harmed state of mind uh yeah he's a filmmaker he's working on this like science fiction project but we don't really hear about that he's living in italy with his much much younger wife and his toddler and he is a recovering addict and he actually, uh, over the course of the film, we, we see him going to AA meetings and he talks about how he was into booze and he was into crack and he was just sort of hitting rock bottom. We get to hear about his rock bottom stories. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, he's trying to have as warm a relationship as he can with his wife. Uh, but when he catches her making out with another man in a park, like over in a corner somewhere, that throws his whole world into a spin. And so we see him trying to work on his film, but over the course of him doing just sort of his everyday work, we see the way doubt is starting to seep into his mind. Mm -hmm. And also how his mind is now kind of infected with a lot of really dark, what could be fantasies. And there's all these really kind of sudden violent images, the kind of things we know Abel Ferrara for. He did Bad Lieutenant, after all. Yeah. that may or might may not be real. One of them definitely isn't real. There's a, a car accident which he envisions and he gets really kind of shocked and horrified and it's really sad and shocking and then it sort of backs up and it turns out that's not real. Is this his like creative inspiration trying to break into his psyche or? Th- this is, I'm not sure if. Uh, like if, is his mind adding drama? Like what's. His, his mind is so hurt and he has previously done such horrible things that he can't keep his mind off of the dark fantasy. 
And I'm not sure if that's true for you, but that happens to me sometimes. Mm. I think that's a very true part of the human condition, especially when you're in kind of a depressed funk. You start having these black fantasies about death around you rather than just something that's happening to you. Interesting. Um, and that I think Abel Ferreira understands that because he himself is also a former addict and a filmmaker who is about the age of the, the Willem Dafoe character. Yeah. So he's, he's kind of clearly struggling through something very, very personal. And I think it's the psycho, the psychology of it that takes the curse off of the self-pity that usually comes with this kind of story. I feel like uh, there are probably a lot of uh, people listening to our podcast, especially younger people, mm. who aren't super familiar with Abel Ferrara. Oh, it's okay. been a while since Abel Ferrara mm. has directed a movie that got a lot of attention. Uh, but in the 80s and 90s in particular, Abel Ferrara was one of the most interestingly gritty before that became like a popular Hollywood buzzword. Mm. One more interesting gritty art house filmmakers that we had. He uh, mm. well, came he, up in the 1970s making pornography. Yeah, just straight up adult yeah. films. Yeah, and then he actually segued out of that into various uh, forms of grindhouse cinema. He did films like Driller Killer and Ms. 45, mm. movies that are exceptionally violent, but were undeniably made by someone with talent. Mm -hmm. Someone who actually wasn't just, especially Ms. 45, wasn't just telling a story to be prurient, but actually put some thought into it. And then over the course of Abel Ferrara's career, I haven't seen everything he's ever done, but... He kept making these movies that dealt with controversial, difficult topics in surprisingly cogent and often very entertaining ways. I still maintain that he has directed one of the very best vampire movies ever made, The Addiction, starring mm. Lily Taylor. The Addiction is really quite good. It's exceptional. His, it's it's uh, like it's the ultimate like liberal arts college gets affected by vampires kind of movie because <laughs> it's very intelligent, but mm. it's also understands its own navel gazing. Mm -hmm. I also think that Abel Ferrara is one of the filmmakers who perhaps perhaps only Scorsese captures New York the way Abel Ferrara does consistently. That is the kind of grit of it. Yeah. Uh, the, There's no the, romance to yeah. it. It makes you feel like you're just in the street. Mm. That's not yeah. that's neither good nor bad. It just feels real yeah. when Abel Ferrara because I think he just has the eye. Yeah. He understands what to look at, what to point the camera at. Yeah, but I, I mentioned Bad Lieutenant. That's mm. a notoriously just violent, rough-edged mm. film with Harvey Keitel giving giving his all plus another Harvey Keitel's worth of performance. <laughs> he's just he's just amazing in that film as the like the world's least moral person. Uh, his version of the invasion of the body snatchers is a little mm. underrated. I feel. Oh no, I think that's a really good one. That, yeah. that, it's it's more pointedly political than the other body snatchers films, and they're all political except for maybe the invasion, I which, which is one. the worst of the lot. But uh, but uh, yeah, Meg that, that Tilly gives one of the yeah. great horror monologues in that movie. If you yeah, ask and, me, and, she's fantastic. And it, it takes place on an army base, so there's all this commentary about how like the military erases your identity. It's not subtle. Uh, it's not. No, it's, it's not. Um, he did a film in uh, the mid. 2010s with Willem Dafoe, where Willem Dafoe played Pasolini. Yeah, I missed and I that. I haven't I wanted seen to see it, that. and I want to see it because I like Pasolini movies. Sure. Well, I approach Pasolini movies. <laughs> uh, Paolo Pasolini ha has done some pretty rough stuff as well. Yeah, uh, but he's also done one of the best Jesus pictures ever made, uh, the Gospel According to Saint Matthew. I haven't seen it. Uh, everyone see the Gospel According to Saint Matthew Noted. by Paolo Pasolini. 
Willem Dafoe plays Pasolini in that movie. Oh, I yeah. directed him. Yeah. Okay. I want to see it. Where is that movie? How come we have, haven't gotten access to it? Yeah, he's he's been churning out work pretty steadily, but uh, yeah, he's. Uh, it's interesting of, that this kind of had a. a f- I, I wouldn't call it a fall. He's just not in the public eye the way he used to. I've be. seen people talking about Tommaso, oh. um, like you praising it, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me because I feel like under normal circumstances, this movie. Especially at this time of year, mm. would have been like the, the pop culture would have just glanced off of it, mm. like a bit of ricochet, or it would have been one of those big kind of puffed up uh, indie releases where a lot of mm. critics would have praised it and a lot of people would have liked it. There would have been some awards buzz and it would have been, been nominated for anything. I, I would be surprised if we even got there because seriously, this is just the sort of thing that just gets overlooked. Yeah, and ironically. You know, with the pandemic shutting everything down, this kind of movie can get a lot more attention. Yeah. yeah well, so, bl- blockbuster season is closed, so now yeah. we get to see all the interesting stuff. Oh, you're a little harsh. I, okay. I'm, I'm a little harsh. I, I feel like the conversations around movies like Tommaso, yeah. uh, which are actually uh, kind of exploring really difficult headspaces, mm-hmm. uh, are going to elicit much far more interesting conversations than the, the minutiae of Black I, Widow. And my point is this, as much as I en- would enjoy probably going mm. to see the new Fast and Furious movie or the mm. new Wonder Woman or anything really. Um, I have nothing against blockbuster cinema whatsoever. Um, the, those things tend to eat up the conversation. They also tend to eat up people's wallets. Mm. Like the money you would spend taking the whole family to see those or you could spend however much it costs to see Tommaso on VOD mm. and a bunch of other things as well for the exact yeah, same amount gonna, of money you, you, would, you would allotted for your entertainment. Uh, and, and I have to point out that it's only on the Kino Lorber streaming service, yeah. not even streaming service, just their website. It's online. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you can't find it like on Amazon or anything, but you can go there and you can rent it. And it, they actually have this wonderful slate of like can films mm. uh, from the last couple of years, just all available there. It's a really, really fantastic catalog. Oh, that's and and Tom- Tommaso is right there at the top. So yeah, check right. out check out the Kino Lorber website and you can find Tommaso. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, there's another film about uh, well, in this case, an actual real life artist mm. um, who is look. It's the movie is Shirley. <laughs> there's a new movie coming that that's out right now. It's on Hulu and VOD if you don't have Hulu, uh, starring Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men and The Invisible Man as Shirley Jackson, who is. One of the great horror writers of the 20th century, and mm. I think I can't think of a legitimate argument to say otherwise. Like, she sometimes gets overlooked on that list, but she wrote The Lottery, mm. she wrote The Haunting of Hill House. That would be enough, <laughs> but she also wrote a bunch mm. of other amazing books and, and short stories. And the new movie, Shirley, is about the writing of one of her earlier novels uh, about a woman, uh, it's based on a true story about a woman who went missing in a college town. And and the, and the woman who goes to investigate. Uh, it's kind of like a mystery, mystery book. Well, the book, I believe, was actually told from the perspective of the victim. But mm. uh, yeah, so it's about this story of a missing woman, a woman who feels that she is not uh, uh, seen and part of the community at large. And the new movie, Shirley, which is not really a biopic because it's actually telling a fictional story. Mm. Uh, but it's about the creation of that story and the way that it mirrors various elements of Shirley Jackson's life. Uh it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. It has one of the best performances of the year. I think. <laughs> I think Elizabeth Moss is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Just in general, in like in terms of acting, in this movie she is completely on fire. And I think between this and Invisible Man, what a fucking year! <laughs> like holy crap. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the main story is actually about uh, a young couple. They move in with 
the uh, Shirley Jackson and her husband Stanley, uh, who's played by the great Michael Stuhlbarg. And uh, the the husband, played by Logan Lerman, is uh, he's a he's a young teacher. He's trying he's, to yeah, like, he's get, like a teacher's aide. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, but the main character yeah. is an ima- an imaginary person mm-hmm. uh, named Paul uh, Rose, Rose, excuse me, played by Odessa Young. Yeah. Um, and uh, while her husband is off doing husband things in the 1950s, he's off uh, working, and we and engaging we, in quite a bit of infidelity, as we come to quickly suspect. Mm. Um, she is asked to stay home and uh, do housework stuff because Shirley Jackson cannot be bothered. Mm. Shirley Jackson and her husband are viewed in this film as kind of intellectual predators, where they like having people around them who aren't as smart as they are, so yeah. they get to constantly feel superior. It's, and it, it's Michael Storborg is kind of playing the same role he did in Call Me By Your Name, but he was like creepy. the evil version. Yeah, yeah. he was super creepy about it. Um, yeah, so it's already this like tense environment. But the more that Rose and Shirley Jackson spend time together, the more that they end up kind of relying on each other for emotional stability, the more that they end up researching the disappearance of this real-life missing woman together, and the more they start to become sexually attracted to each other, mm. and the more it starts to get creepy. Yeah, like, it's it, it, it's it's wonderfully bisexual. Um, yeah. And in fact, the the director, her name is Josephine, Josephine Decker. Decker. Uh, Josephine Decker uh, previously directed a documentary about bisexuality in America, so she would know. Um, but it's it's not in this sort of everything is is really creepy in this movie. Every yeah. every motive is suspect, and I like that Shirley Jackson is depicted. As a, not a very good person. Yeah. She, uh, it's not just that she is one of those like misunderstood geniuses who, you know, people just don't understand and she just lives in her own world and lives in her own way. She's actually n- not well and yeah. admittedly so. And everybody sort of points this out to her. And her husband is actually very, he's a cad, but he's very understanding about what she requires, even if what she requires is to pray on this this younger woman. Yeah, there's a bit where he says, "Listen, he's made a deal with her. Mm. You can you you have she she'll stay in bed forever. You need to get out of bed. You cannot eat unless you eat at the table." Yeah. And she says, "Well, I don't, okay, I'll eat at the table, but I won't be nice." That, I never said you had to be nice. Yeah. And they spend the whole dinner just making the other young couple feel miserable. <laughs> and afterwards they're like, <laughs> that was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, they're they're no. jerks. But the thing is, is that what what I think the movie is very very canny about is showing that Shirley Jackson doesn't have a lot of outlets. Mm. The whole town doesn't like her. She wrote this short story, The Lottery, just recently. Which, when that story came out, man, people were pissed. That was not a story that made people happy. That was a story that challenged people. A, a lot of, a lot of people, people thought it was a true story. Yeah, a lot of people thought published. like it was like based on, at the very least, loosely based on wherever she lived. So a lot of people fucking hate her right now. <laughs> so she's not happy. She's not popular. She's clearly in a depressive state. And listen, she, her husband is is unfaithful to the extreme. She is untrusting of just about everybody and, and he's he's unapologetic about it yeah. too it's just sort of their life yeah and and she's living in this patriarchal system where even though she's the big breadwinner in the house she is treated as the wife mm. she doesn't have a lot of outlets and she'll take whatever she can get and i think the movie is smart about making that understandable without being overly sympathetic yeah. And saying that Shirley is actually like doing she this is actually nice but you don't realize it like no that's actually a fucked up thing to do mm. 
but I get why she does it. Yeah, and there's and there's a wonderful and we see why she wants to lash out at, at the high society that she lives uh, lives among. Uh, there's a scene late in the movie where. She's invited to a fancy dress party, and you know she decides to show up kind of out of spite. Yeah, and her husband even says like, "You don't have to go." It's like, no, I'll go. Yeah, and and everybody's really well dressed. She's just wearing her, you know, not as fancy clothes. Very mm-hmm. deliberately, she's you know dressing down for the the scenario. She's given a glass of wine, and at one point, the hostess and she are in the same room, and she just uh, upends her glass of wine on the couch. Yeah. And uh, and the woman runs over and starts like wiping it, and she just starts rubbing it into the upholstery, like making the stain worse. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't give a fuck about this. I love there's a bit. I'm gonna fuck up the line mm-hmm. where there's a bit where she's at that party and someone says, "Oh, Shirley, mm-hmm. you're here. What a nice blouse you have." And she says, "Oh, thank you. What a nice insincere tone you have." <laughs> the writing it's- is sharp. Uh, is, I thought that line was a little corny. Oh but, no, uh, but I uh, like it though because it's basically like she's she's being asked to be put on display, mm. and she won't you know, play the games. I'm, I love her. Uh, Shirley Jackson wrote a few books about child rearing. Uh, mm. She had some kids, and yet one of the big dramatic cruxes of this movie is sort of like uh, uh, resentment that the younger woman is like more fertile than she is. They're they're essentially turning it into like an old timey fairy tale mm-hmm. about you know the sort of the they're they're sort of casting Shirley Jackson in, in a lot of ways as sort of the crone figure in an old fairy tale. Mm-hmm. She and, even talks and, about yeah. doing witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, and th- this young woman is sort of like the innocent that's going to be corrupted by this this witch that she's moved in with. Yeah, uh, but Shirley Jackson had kids. This wasn't like an actual drama. Has she had Jackson. kids yet? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. By the time she published the lottery, I think she had had some kids and had already published a few books on rearing okay. them. They were very sardonic books about child. My rearing. timeline. I haven't done but, a lot uh, of research on the timeline, yeah. but uh, fair I'd, enough. I'd have to look that up. But yeah, the, the, well, again, it's important to remember this is a fictional it's, story. This it's a fictional is a, story. This is an attempt to those, those, the younger couple that moves in with Shirley Jackson don't didn't really exist. They, yeah, this is an attempt to tell like a, a short L, uh, 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 interlude. Mm-hmm. In Shirley Jackson's life, and tell it in a way akin to how Shirley Jackson would do it. And one of the things Shirley Jackson was excellent at was putting you inside the mind of people who are deeply unhappy and often unwell, and questioning their reality and making you question it too. One of the things I love about this movie is it is deeply ambiguous by the end. Yeah, like the ending, it might be dissatisfying to some. I'll warn you off the bat: this is not one of those like ambiguous endings like Inception where like oh it's fun to debate like you may not have any idea what happened (laughs) at the end of this movie but I think that's the point and I think it's about sort of the intersection between uh, fantasy and reality where the movie resided all along Mm. Um, so listen I think this is a a splendid acting showcase in particular I think Mm. everyone's really excellent in it especially Elizabeth Moss um, I think it is a, a, a nice production. I really enjoy the production design and costumes in particular. Elizabeth Moss has this one duck shirt that is like the <laughs> best shirt like ever. Like I would wear this shirt every day. It's it's a it, it's really kind of cluttered. Like, it, it, yeah. but in, in that aesthetically it, pleasing sort of way, it's a very mannered kind of clutter. Shirley Jackson has a line in this movie that says, "A clean house is a symptom of a diseased mind." Um, but anyway, yes, it's excellent. Um, anyway, let's move on. Uh, right. Let's talk about uh, I'm No Longer Here. Okay. You saw uh, this. Yes, I did. Uh, this is a Mexican film. It's on Netflix. Uh, it takes place uh, in this really tiny subculture within northern Mexico in the town of Monterrey, where a bunch of 
uh, like local teenagers have decided that the coolest thing in the world is uh, Colombian music and uh, and Colombian culture. They sort of like have borrowed a lot of the elements of Colombian culture to inform their their own sort of hipness. Mm. Uh, they get a lot of Colombian folk music and they dance in this really kind of bizarre. Uh, almost uh, kind of ritualistic sort of way because they slow the music down and they gyrate in this odd way. And they have also adopted one of the strangest hairdos you will ever see. Mm. Uh, I have to describe the hairdo to you. Uh, Imagine like the back hemisphere of your head is shaved, but you have like a little line of hair right where your hairline would be in the back. Okay. Uh, You have Betty Page bangs in the front. Okay. Uh, sideburns grown down so long that they kind of meet under your chin and mm-hmm. they've been styled with wax to stay underneath your chin and the tips have been frosted. And then on the top, you have this tuft of like v- this volcanic blonde tuft on the top. Okay. So like everyone was wearing their hair like two years ago. Yeah. That's like the hippest thing. Well, the fun thing is, <laughs> uh, is the, the main character is a 17 t- year old boy named Ulysses. Uh, he, he wears this, you got just got to say this utterly ridiculous hairdo with such confidence that you start to think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's all like, it so, takes, so, really. Somebody, somebody approaches him is like, so what's with the hair? And he just sort of says, yeah, cool, right? It's really all yeah. it takes for something to become fashionable mm-hmm. is someone with the confidence to pull it off. Yeah. There's so many things that, like, we would wear now that would never be cool mm-hmm. before or things that used to be cool that we can't understand why they're ever cool. It's because we never met anyone confidently wearing them. Mm-hmm. It's all it takes. It doesn't matter how weird it is. If you see it and that person's pulling it off, shit, I guess I should wear that. <laughs> I guess I and, have a new hairstyle. And a lot of this movie and the best parts of this movie are the hangout mo- parts of the movie. Mm. Uh, a, a hangout movie is a movie where you essentially just see scene after scene of people just hanging out and having mm. a good time and being friends. And there can be a lot of exhilaration to be had in just watching people have conversations and be who they are. And, yeah, the the... He, uh, Ulysses, this main character, belongs to a gang. It's sort of, it's sort of it's like part gang, but part like dance crew from Step Up, because they they're all really fashion and dance obsessed, but they're also you know involved with like local uh, drug dealing and crime. Mm. Uh, when the plot gets going, it actually and it does sort of skip back and forth in time, but the plot is about how Ulysses runs afoul of another local gang and ends up having to flee the country and spends a good deal of time in Queens. He flees to America where uh, he is rejected by essentially everybody. His little tiny corner of the world isn't understood by uh, the other Mexicans who live in Queens, by uh, the Colombians who live in Queens. Just he speaks in such a weird way and he has such an odd sense of style that he's an outsider among outsiders among outsiders. And uh, we really get to see how that forgive me, dick swinging confidence (laughs) can only take him so far. Uh, It's when we get into the nitty gritty of the plot, when it's about sort of the crime and the violence, it's actually not nearly as interesting as just hanging out with the kids mm-hmm. because they are, are sort of living so confidently in their sort of constructed square of cool. And I don't know if you've ever had that phenomenon when you were like maybe in college or high school, when you and your friends felt like you were the only ones who lived that way. No, I was always kind of kind of crap. <laughs> well, I mean, it I never thought it was that cool. It didn't matter what you were doing, but you thought you were cool. No, never thought All it was right. cool. Never, never. Mm. Still don't. Yeah, I got I, nothing. I did stuff like going, like going to Rocky Horror, and like it's like everybody. Well, did I would that, occasionally but, do know, a thing yeah, I okay. thought was cool, but I always felt like I, I was there by accident. Like someone accidentally left me in, or <laughs> I was someone's plus one, yeah. and under normal circumstances, I wouldn't be allowed. 
Well, I, I'm no longer here captures something you never experienced. Uh, well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> and I really wanted to see that. It's really quite good. It's it's really fun to hang out. And yeah, for, for like a good half of the movie, it's just mm. blissfully relaxing. Uh, and the other half? And the other half, it just sort of feels... It feels too much like a movie, if you get what I mean. Mm, it starts feeling artificial. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's bad, though? Like, it, does it all no, even no, out? It all evens out good? Or? No, not bad. I mean, it, it is rewarding. And, and the, the young lead, let me look up the actor's name, is... is so uh, so striking that you, know, you just can't take your eyes off this guy. And this uh, is on Netflix, by the yeah. way. You can watch this right now. Uh, Ulysses is played by an actor named uh, Juan Daniel Garcia Trevino. Oh. And yeah, he's really, really terrific. Awesome. Well, mm. let's uh, let's keep an eye out on them and uh, let's keep an eye on that movie. Uh, also this week on uh, streaming on the Shudder Network, hmm. uh, there's a new documentary called Scream Queen. Scream, comma, queen. Uh, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a documentary about the life and career of Mark Patton. And if you're unfamiliar with that name, I don't blame you. He really was only in a couple of movies and then kind of got drummed out of the industry. Uh, He was the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Which, uh, for... Many years was considered the worst in the series. Yeah. um, And it's not. (laughs) I think that honor now belongs to Freddy's Dead, but... uh, I think it belongs to the remake, actually. Oh, well, definitely the remake. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, uh, was a little unusual because they rushed it into production after the success of the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Not unusual Uh, for horror movies in the 80s. Uh, So they were so quick to make the sequel, they didn't really look at the first one too much. Mm -hmm. So they kind of changed the rules of, of A Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit, and... From what I understand, they actually hired a stuntman to play Freddy Krueger and not Robert Englund at first. And then they because they, they didn't really yeah. they didn't realize that the actor playing Freddy Krueger was like an important part of what made that monster so scary. And then they ended up rehiring Robert Englund because to play Freddy Krueger and all he's of the only one who knows until, how to make that up, part up work. until the remake. Robert Englund played Freddy Krueger in every movie. And, and to, to, to be fair, Jack Earl Haley is not the problem with the remake. He's actually a good Freddy Krueger. His makeup uh, uh, isn't great, but I think yeah. he's good in it. In, but. In, in the abstract, he's good. Yeah, yeah. in any case. Uh, but yeah, one of the things that... Uh, th- uh, uh, the second of Nightmare on Elm Street made money when it came out. It made enough money to justify making Dream Warriors, and then Dream Master, and Dream Child, and Freddy's Dead, and beyond, beyond, beyond. But it was seen as the weird one in the series because... It was... It was way too gay. It was loaded with gay subtext mm. to the point that it was practically text. The only reason I say practically and not just text is because the director of the film, Jack Shoulder, says to this day it all went over his head. Which is yeah. not a good look for a director and, uh, who made one of the gayest horror movies ever made. Like and, uh, you think you think you wouldn't yeah. want to admit that you think you'd be like yeah I did it and I'm proud you know like now Mark and of course they they actually spent a lot of time in this documentary kind of recounting uh, views on on views on gays uh, in the 1980s and how there was this big ultra conservative push to push uh, people back in the closet mm-hmm. and you know AIDS was uh, rampaging through uh, well the entire world and. Yeah. If, if you want more details on that, watch the documentary How to Survive a Plague. Uh, but Mark Patton came along at a time... Uh, he's a gay actor. Mm-hmm. He was out, but then he was in again. Well, he uh, was out in his own community, yeah. but he wasn't out to his public. Like People knew he was gay, but mm-hmm. he wasn't publicly gay. He wasn't mm-hmm. openly gay. That was considered a bad thing for his career. He got his start in uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, the, which was a uh, play... Br- an Altman uh, film, yeah. Well, it was an Altman film and an Altman play, and this was this big movie co-starring Cher. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a good, like, big 
acting. I don't know if it was technically his debut. He did a lot of commercials, but that's a big like, holy shit, who's this new guy? Hmm. And then he moved to Hollywood and he got a big part in the lead part, actually, in a slasher sequel that was going to get seen by millions of people all over the world. And then when it came out, his agents realized he doesn't read as straight, Mm -hmm. which limits his like ability to get work in the 80s. And his agents were just like, we got to straighten you up. Or we got to commit to you being a character actor because hmm. it's not going to work. And, and it, he felt it, really ostracized from the community. And, and it, yeah, it, then his boyfriend had AIDS. And then he just left. Yeah, he, he couldn't handle he, it. He dropped out. And yeah, it was really, really psychologically damaging that he was, uh, you know, so pressured to not be gay mm-hmm. uh, that that society was so cruel as to force people into the closet mm-hmm. that it really did a number on his mind. Uh, Jack Shoulder eventually came to terms with the fact that there was a lot of uh, gay text in the screenplay. Yeah, he seems a bit bemused by it yeah, now. He, yeah. He's a little amused by it. Of course, Mark Patton is like... He has life ruined by this. He doesn't have a very good experience with this, uh, and it is kind of a big story about how he had to come to terms with being a certain kind of movie star, mm-hmm. even though he resents, I think, this movie for the psychological damage it did to him and sort of the, the ripples it caused in his own psyche mm-hmm. and, and ruining his career. And yeah. And, and really ruining his career. Uh, yeah. He, he, the movie is about, uh, how Freddy Krueger is sort of trying to break into the real world by possessing the body of the Mark Patton character. Yeah. But beyond that, and I think that's just mm-hmm. sort of the mechanics of the plot, What's happening here is that whereas in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger pops up on someone's dreams, plays with their phobias or something for a minute, and then kills them. Mm. One of the things I love about Nightmare on Elm Street, too, and it is like my third favorite film in the series after the original and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Mm. I love it. Unironically. Uh, Is that it's actually about Freddy Krueger just mentally torturing one person. Yeah. Like, other people die, but... He's mentally torturing one person, and the reason he's able to mentally torture this young teenage boy is because that boy is actually uncomfortable with himself, and he has got all of this... Um, uh, Pent-up sexual frustration. Yeah, and is and he's not comfortable with his own identity, and Freddy Krueger is able to prey on that. Yeah. Because this kid doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't have the strength that Nancy had, because Nancy, all Nancy had to do in the first film was say she's not afraid. He doesn't mm. even know who he is. How can he know if that person's afraid or yeah, not? And I There's something really scary about The that. screenplay is supposed to be tapping into, and uh, we know this because we actually talked to the screenwriter, um, it's supposed to be tapping into just sort of a lot of adolescent angst. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's not sleeping with his girlfriend when all of his friends are telling him he should be. And, you know, just the that usual sort of thing. But what's right there in the screenplay is that he's clearly gay. Mm. The character is clearly gay. Uh, he does a lot of, uh, things that read as gay, especially to a modern audience. There's a scene where he's, uh, dancing and it, it comes across as very fay and fabulous. Hey, Luca, get off the table, Luca's buddy. on the table. Why are you, why are you yeah. on the table? <laughs> and, uh, for goodness sake, there's a scene where he's sort of, he's in a gay hip- bar. hypnotized to going into a gay bar. Yeah. And there's a you know a bondage scene like a beating scene with a nude man. It's and there's a scene where he feels a lot of anxiety about uh, sleeping with his girlfriend, so he runs straight to his male best friend, mm-hmm. and his male best friend is na- like shirtless and greasy, and they're like in really close quarters. There's a lot of 
of it's not subtle. gay, gay t- tension in the movie. And people picked up on that at the time. Mm. Like, it didn't take long after the movie came out for a lot of publications mm. to say, this is a gay horror movie. Mm. And a lot of people weren't comfortable admitting that, screenwriter included. Mm. And as a result, Mark Patton got thrown under a bus. They say, well, mm. it wasn't supposed to be gay, but they, Mark they, Patton made it gay. Yeah, and they, they Mark Patton pissed him. Mark Patton off as well it fucking should. Well, they wrote it. It's so frustrating that that's, that's a fine topic for a horror film mm-hmm. about a, an anxious gay man who is trying to come out on his own terms. Yeah. Uh, being sort of forced out by this monster that's living within him. Yeah, and, and, and that and, monster and, and represents in terms of a movie, it's just a literal monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a lot going on. That A twenty four would make a movie like that for yeah. goodness' sake. Uh, but at the time, people were so uncomfortable and so unused to seeing queer characters on screen and queer subtext at all. Because, the, you know, the, th- think of a movie like Top Gun mm. and how just testicular that movie is. And yeah. a lot of people say, oh, look at all of the, you know, the, this sort of, it's kind of gay because there's a lot of shirtless dudes or it's just a lot of female gays is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by a man, but it's it's really just eye candy. Like, these shirtless yeah. dudes are eye candy. We, we say the uh, uh, female gays, G-A-Z-E. It's no. uh, the... the mm. Look at all these hunky dudes. Yeah. That's the, now, yeah. and yes, but the audiences were, weren't ready to... Uh, accept a movie with gay text in it, so they dismissed it and mm-hmm. they derided it for being the gay one. Mm-hmm. And that all of that ended up falling back on Mark Patton, and that kind of destroyed him. And this is a documentary about how all of that happened. Mm-hmm. It's about the uh, the what it was like being a young actor in the '80s, especially a gay actor who had to hide who you were, mm-hmm. and how he eventually started building up his career and celebrity bag. And although he's not really acting the way he used to, he is now a, a prominent presence in the gay community and the, especially in the gay horror community. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie had, it took a long time, but the movie finally has unironic appreciators, particularly within the gay community. Mm-hmm. People who Peaches, actually, uh, Peaches Christ, famous drag queen, like hosted a series of screenings. Yeah. And Peaches Christ, uh, does a lot of interviews and there's a lot of interviews with various people in the community who are basically just saying like, Hey, yeah, it's a horror movie with a protagonist I can relate to. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> what the hell? This yeah, and, is great. And, and when Mark Patton was invited to go to some of these screenings, yeah, he had to have this big sort of personal reckoning. It's mm. like, I, but I hate what this movie did to me. Yeah. But a lot of people are now, like appreciating it now the way they perhaps should have 30 years previous. And they're not appreciating it. I mean, maybe some are, but they're not appreciating it ironically. They're not basically yeah. like, ah, ha, ha, it's ha, not like what troll about? two or something. Yeah, no, and, they're actually just like actually on the film's wavelength, actually appreciating his performance mm-hmm. and seeing it's, that it's, even though it's, it's, it's silly, odd, but they like that. It's silly. There's and, an odd, there's, it's an odd film mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but it's an incredibly like pointed one. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very effective. The only thing I dislike about this documentary, and I do like this documentary a lot, I think if you're a fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, I think it's very illuminating. If, if There's a lot of... It's very illuminating about the way the industry was in the 1980s, and frankly, if you're a horror community, if you're part of the horror community, it's nice to see someone like get this kind of uh, resurrection. Mm, yeah. You know, that's actually very inspiring. And, you know, you never know when... You're making all these works of art when something will hit in a way you didn't expect or at a time you didn't expect. Good for him. The film culminates with a confrontation between Mark Patton and the screenwriter who mm. had repeatedly thrown him under a bus. 
And he said all he wanted to do was get him in the room and get that guy to apologize to him. And I'm I'm glad Mark Patton felt like a catharsis after that, but I didn't actually. I no, thought I uh, thought the guy actually kind of weaseled out of it in some ways. Yeah, it's it's about how this this guy who he admitted that he, when he tried to write sort of a, a little bit of in, in his words, he tried to write some gay uh, subtext subtext into the into yeah. the movie, but in a homophobic context, mm-hmm. he was deriding and mocking. The gay, the gayness of the characters. Well, the, what he what he says is that he's trying to talk about like, oh, it would be, wouldn't it be scary to be gay at this yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is got a lot of problems. Well, uh, there there's a great, um, well, I mean, not great, but a really illuminating montage in the '95 documentary, The Celluloid Closet, mm-hmm. where if you go through a lot of the film, like comedies and films that were coming out in like the early to mid eighties mm. and how often they use gay slurs in those movies. There's just yeah. a montage of just all of these people using like yeah, various slurs. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just th- throughout all these movies. And, uh, there's even a, a scene in, in teen wolf. Oh where, yeah. Where, uh, uh, Michael J. Fox come to his comes to his best friend. He's like, I have something I need to tell you. And his best friend says, Oh, are you going to say you're gay? Because I couldn't handle if you're gay. No, 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 oh, no, yeah. no, no. I'm not gay. Yeah. I'm just a werewolf. It's like, Oh my God, seriously? Yeah, I, yeah. It's really, really, uh, that, and that's in it. Sometimes you'll watch like movies from the '80s in particular where it seems like, Oh, I remember Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's a that's a harmless little comedy, and they have a gay panic moment in that too, where they call each other the f word. Yeah, yeah, and. That scene sucks. Can we? You can cut that. Mm. Why is that in there? Bunch of bullshit. <laughs> but yeah, that kind of like, yeah, gay the, panic was in a lot well, of. Things. Yeah, it was just really pervasive, and the screenwriter was clearly trying to just write one of those gay panic moments. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the confrontation didn't go the way Mark Patton said it did, and I can see that he, Mark Patton, in fact, is a little bit upset that it didn't yeah. go. As, I think as he's nice trying to make the most of what he got. Yeah, and that's what I got impression of. I'll say this. Shudder is doing awesome work with this kind of stuff because mm-hmm. this is a film put out by Shudder. They've made uh, now three documentaries uh, that I've seen in recent years. Uh, they did Scream Queen. They did Horror Noir, which is terrific. Mm-hmm. And they have a series called Cursed Films where they're making documentaries about horror movies and, and aspects of the horror, just the whole genre without ever sensationalizing it. Now they're called shutter and they just sort of lure you in with sort of the gore and the titillation, but their documentaries are actually really classy. Mm. They're really well thought out. Uh, they have re- real things on their minds. Yeah. Uh, cursed films, you'd think it's like, oh, and, and Poltergeist was cursed because all these people died. And you watch the episode about Poltergeist and you realize, like they talked to the director of Poltergeist 3, who had to finish the movie after Heather O'Rourke had passed. And there was all this talk about, we, we can't finish this movie. This is too sad. Mm-hmm. A 12-year-old girl is dead. Yeah. We're not going to put her in this, like, corny horror movie that I don't even like. The director even admitted, I don't like this movie. Yeah. Uh, and especially because they had to, like, shoot around the fact that Heather O'Rourke had died, and that felt so tasteless to him. Yeah. And it really reminds you, that this is not, like, a cursed film that you can sort of, like, wow, this is really fun horror stuff. This is really sad. Yeah. The people have died. And we shouldn't be sensationalizing it. And that Shudder is coming out and saying this is really cathartic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Horror Noir is a really intelligent film as well. So uh, now I'm on the lookout for documentaries put out by Shudder. Yes. Yeah. They have a good track record now, and I hope they don't whiff at it. Awesome. Okay. Uh, tell me about, let's get to a, a movie mm. that we missed uh, last week. Let's talk about The High Note. The High Note. You saw this? I, I didn't. Yeah, this is a film from Nisha Ganatra, who did uh, Late Night. Oh, okay. And, and a few other. She also wrote uh, 
I think one of the Bring It On movies. Ooh. Or no, it wasn't a Bring It On movie. It was a Center Stage movie. Ooh. It was Center Stage Unpoint. Nice. Nisha Ganantra wrote wrote that one. Nice Uh, pun there. This is the story of the relationship between uh, Tracy Ellis Ross, who is uh, a pop star who has been in the business for so long that she's uh, starting to only be asked to sing like her big hits. And uh, people aren't really sort of taking her original uh, work seriously and her records aren't selling so well. And her assistant, who's played by Dakota Johnson, who is an aspiring... It's Dakota Johnson's story. And it's about how she is aspiring to be a producer. Mm. And she is essentially trying to, in that uh, very bohemian sort of way, bring artistic purity back to uh, the music. Uh, Ah, She's learned that all of modern production is now about flattening it out, making it all sound sort of the same, adding all of these extra elements that are just sort of distracting from the purity of her her, uh, client's, or I guess her boss's vocals. Right. And it is about how uh, being an ambitious young woman in this industry uh, just earns you a lot of rancor from all, all the people around you, that they don't sort of take you seriously. They scoff at your idealism. They all claim to know more than you. Yeah. Uh, she has a lot of angry conversations with Ice Cube, who plays her longtime actual producer and keeps on telling her, you don't know what you're talking about. And that gives her, of course, a lot of doubt. She starts dating a young man who uh, is, of course, also a local uh, musician, and she starts mixing his stuff and decides to get her career on track by helping this young guy instead. Okay, I'm actually having trouble because you haven't really introduced me to tone of this yet. Mm. Is it like a Star is Born, kind of melodramatic and serious? Mm. Is it like Pitch Perfect, kind of funny? It's it's very... it's, It's... it's serious melodrama, but it's like very slick Hollywood melodrama. Okay. And I, this is from the director of Late Night, and one of my big issues with Late Night is that it actually felt a little rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit shabby. A big problem with that movie is that it's about a stand-up comedian who comes up with brand new, fresh material that actually like changes the way the world looks at her. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, you actually have to write fresh material yeah, for the material's got to actually be that good and you either yeah. have to write around it which is always obvious or mm-hmm. you actually have to write good stuff and they didn't so right. it, like the you one have to always... take the film's word for it that this is good material the one that always pisses me off is in the movie Finding Forrester where we're constantly told yeah, yeah, yeah. that the protagonist not Sean Connery who plays like the mm. J.D. Salinger type this reclusive author who mm. uh, young, uh, a young man in college like discovers and he gives the kid writing Legend, Mm. but the young kid is supposed to be like this brilliant writer, like as good as JD Salinger. Mm. And at the end of the movie, the JD Salinger character comes along and he actually reads the kid's work because no one believes that the kid was this good. They assume he he plagiarized something. Mm. He reads the kid's work and then he gives the kid credit for it, which he should. Mm. But when he reads the work, and we've been told this kid is brilliant the entire time. When he reads the kid's work, the music swells, mm-hmm. and we just see people's they faces fade going to a montage. People and faces like, nodding, going, "Hmm, yes, yes that yes. is good work. It's that like, is brilliant. That is the best thing anyone has ever written." And I'm like, "Fuck you! What? <laughs> You're not gonna let us hear what it, what he wrote? What the fuck?" Well, what you do is you say you, you smash cut to like a critic talking about it. So. <laughs> Like and then it explores all these interesting themes, so you can like have the intellectual idea of what that thing so is. Without brilliant, I vomited right there in the theater. JD Salinger <laughs> saw me do it. I, oh, it's so embarrassing! I, I sneezed earwax out my eyes. It was I don't even know what that means. Oh my god, I went um, home and I 
And I told my kid I loved him for the first yeah, time. This, it was this, the most beautiful thing I ever heard. This is slick, lightweight, lightweight Hollywood melodrama okay. uh, with some pretty good performances, uh, particularly from Tracy Ellis Ross, uh, who oh. is just great. Um, That's cool. Uh, she's on uh, Girlfriends and uh, Blackish. And yeah, she plays the star who has a really, really great uh, moment where she actually gets to tell, you know, lay her story down for the Dakota Johnson character, where mm-hmm. she says, I I am a, a black woman of a certain age. Do you think I'm going to have an original hit now? I, these these other guys that you keep sort of railing against because they're not artistically pure are keeping me rich. They're giving me money. They're mm-hmm. actually looking out for me. What are you trying to do? You're trying to wreck my career. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's that really wonderful That's an interesting moment. conversation yeah. to have. A it lot is, of people yeah. who've been in the industry for a long time are... They have their celebrity. They're solidified within the industry. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since Dolly Parton had a new number one hit. Yeah, yeah. You know, she doesn't need one right now. She's doing <laughs> fine. You know, she, she's famous for being Dolly Parton. Now. Yeah, and yeah, she puts up new stuff. I'm sure it does fine. But like, it's been a while since she's done a. I will always top, love you. Yeah, top you know? forty hit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Tracy Ellis Ross is so good at that. She actually really sells the moment, and you actually. St- start to root against Dakota Johnson for a few scenes. Mm. Uh, And then it becomes really contrived. She's going to help this young guy and she's going to reinvent her career. That's when all the cameos start up. Oh, Bill Pullman is my dad. I have to sneak up on this other producer who is Eddie Izzard. And wait a minute, there's Melanie Griffith. It's like all of a sudden these like big name actors start Mm. showing up to help this poor lamb along her way and allow her to achieve the artistic purity. It's totally fantasy. It's almost like a Richard Curtis thing after a while. Well, that's that's, that's Uh, my concern with something yeah. like this is that it can seem really fake. But it, it, yeah. it, I mean, it, it by the end, it's definitely like really fake. And there's this big sort of plot twist at the end, and it, you know, it's like turned like I, I won't say what it is, and but uh, Dakota it, Johnson was a witch all along. It, it's really, really contrived. It's a fun moment, but it's super contrived in terms of plotting and like actual screenwriting. Luckily, there's a little bit of zip and fun along the way. Uh, June Diane Raphael shows up mm. in this movie as. Uh, another personal assistant who lives at the uh, at the star's house. Mm-hmm. She's like the pool girl, essentially. And she is... I mean, whenever June Diane Raphael shows up in a movie, you know you're in for a treat because she's bloody hilarious. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, she essentially has to explain that, you know, you, you need to hang on to this kind of lifestyle because living in a rich person's uh, pool house is like the best life ever gets. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> that is good. Um, all right. it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Sometimes that's it's all we want. It's corny. It's, it's more distracting than it is meaningful. But yeah, like... Sometimes that's all we th- want. That can serve a function as well. Yeah, no, we, we were, there's art for all times. You know, and it's good to have a, a decent version of that. Yeah. Um, a movie that came along, this shift in gears, and mm-hmm. another one we both saw. Movie came along, really surprised me. I really like this movie a lot. <laughs> it's a new horror thriller called Becky. Mm-hmm. Uh, Becky stars Kevin James as a white supremacist murderer. And you know what? He's good at that. He is actually a uh, really good horror movie villain. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Kevin James is, you know, his stock and trade is, of course, lovable doofuses. That's how he became yeah. a star. He was the King of Queens. Uh, he fell in with the Adam Sandler crowd and was in a couple Adam Sandler, uh, rather Happy Madison movies. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and not, playing, not playing all bad ones. Like, actually, like, Here Comes the Boom is fine. I, I never saw Here Comes it's the Boom. It's perfectly but... adequate for what it is. It's it's He's cute in it. But yeah, he played... Paul Blart won. Not that bad a film. <laughs> I will say it. Paul Bar 2 is worse than you than you've ever heard Paul Bar 1 was. 
Pulp War 2 is a fucking crime. <laughs> Pulp War 1 is actually pretty yeah. fun. For what I understand, Paul, Paul Blart Mall Cop is actually very sympathetic to the Paul Blart, Paul Blart character. Yeah, he's not the joke. That's the reason yeah. why the movie actually kind of works. Is the movie it actually like likes him. Paul Blart Mall Blart. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> Whereas Paul Blart 2 has no sympathy for him. No, Paul Blart 2 is weirdly yeah. mean-spirited. Like, it's just mean. Uh, but yeah, Kevin James is very good at that, but you have to remind yourself, he is an actor. He does yeah. have range, and he probably was aching to play something a little bit different. And boy, howdy is this out of his wheelhouse. Yeah, and he's very menacing. It helps that he's got this, like, really angry-looking beard <laughs> like he's, the beard looks angry like the beard looks like it wants to punch you yeah, but uh, he and uh, some other white supremacists escape from prison and they're looking for a, a MacGuffin and yeah. uh, there's a thing and it's hidden inside like a lake house and mm. the family who owns the lake house uh, is Joel McHale from Community and his daughter Lulu Wilson uh, who you may remember from uh, the Annabelle I think it's Annabelle Comes An- Home Annabelle Origin or Annabelle Creation and Ouija Origin Evil. Okay, those are the two. But uh, she's done a lot of horror movies, so it's not weird to see her here. And uh, yeah, she, she's only fourteen, but she's really quite good. She's really, really strong. And uh, yeah, so they there's a home invasion thing, and they take the family hostage. And uh, Becky has been uh, played by Lula Wilson has been dealing with a lot of um, serious mental health issues since her mom died, and she's starting to become. Um, you know, like, really, really withdrawn and angry, and yeah, kind of destructive, even. So, when these guys threaten her family, this is actually a really good outlet for her to stab people in the neck with her art pencils. <laughs> yeah, she she turns into the avenging badass who kills white supremacists. Uh, it, awesome, it's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. a great premise for a movie. If, if you want to watch a ninth grader murdering neon, murdering neon, Clarissa neon kills them is... all, like that's where we're at right here. <laughs> That's basically the premise here. I was reminded of the film The Aggression Scale, which is another film about uh, teenagers who fight off home invaders. Uh, The Aggression Scale, I think, deals a little bit more directly with the mental health issue. The the Aggression Scale, if you missed it, is this low-budget horror film from the early 2010s. Totally got overlooked. Hmm. Shouldn't have been. Where just there's a home invasion, they're going to kill this whole family, but what they don't realize is that the youngest son is a burgeoning serial killer. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the kind of outlet that he needs to yeah, so, be a burgeoning. But the movie doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't shy away from that. Yeah. It, it does. It points out that you know what he's doing is you know in, in movie terms really cool, but at the same time, it's also really disturbing. He, yeah, a, a child should not have these sorts of thoughts. Yeah, uh, Becky is less sophisticated. It's actually more about just sort of the the prurient thrill of watching neo Nazis get theirs at the hands of a fourteen year old. Uh, but it's fun to watch. It's very well it's, crafted. It's, yeah, it's really the 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 neo Nazis are really kind of scary, uh, mm-hmm. and Kevin James especially. And they've got uh, more. They're and they've got like more to their character than they really even just needed faceless to. Faceless bad guys. Like yeah. they've got individual personalities, and like one of them actually has regrets about the things that he's doing. He's wrestling mm-hmm. with it in a somewhat believable way. Um, the performances are strong all throughout the board. The thing that makes this movie. More than just quite good, and actually just, I think, sends it into the stratosphere, <laughs> is the score. Mm. The score is from Nima, one second, Nima Fakrara. Fakrara, yeah. Uh, who is also uh, was the composer on the video game Detroit Become Human. Um, and uh, has done a bunch of other, like, you know, low-budget movies. and mm. uh, It's a fucking great horror score. Like, they use... Mm like deep panicky breathing as percussion <laughs> and that adds so much intensity 
to an otherwise very small scale movie. Like it's all at a lake house. It's all pretty much on the cheap. You know, the the cast is like surprisingly good for a film like this. Like Joel McHale is recognizable, Kevin James, Lulu Wilson. Uh the woman who plays uh Becky's prospective stepmother, I want to make sure I get her name right. Uh is uh, Amanda Bruegel. Uh, you might remember know her from Kim's Convenience. Uh she's very good in it as well. Um it's a, just a well-constructed, violent action mm. movie. Um, I have a few... The only thing I really have an issue with is the MacGuffin, which they make too big a thing out of. Yeah. Like, it could just be it's a safe deposit box key or something that's all the money we need to escape or whatever, and that would have been enough. But mm. Kevin James makes it sound like it's going to, like... Un- unlock the eye in the pyramid and unleash some, yeah. some mystical thing. Yeah. And we never really engage with that. And the where that ends up like raises some questions I'm actually not comfortable asking after the mm. movie we just saw. Like, I don't think they necessarily thought it through. Like, yeah. they, like, oh, it's cool that the key ended up here. And I'm like, no, actually, it's not actually. No, it's actually kind of troubling. Because we what know what that? that thing means now. And, and the, that, the fact that, that this person has it, yeah. that doesn't necessarily, that, that might change the way we look at them. Yeah. It's weird. And that part doesn't fully function, but as a straight-up revenge horror thriller, mm. it is very mm. well-crafted, and it is very satisfying, and I do highly recommend yeah. it. it. It It's gleefully irresponsible. Yeah. Uh, it's from the directors of a film called Cooties, which <laughs> I don't like. Uh, it's it's one of the few Spectre Vision films I know. Spectre Vision is Elijah Wood's horror production company, and yeah. uh, he put out a film called Cooties, which is about a bunch of shiftless, horrible teachers who have to uh, fight off a bunch of zombie children when the elementary school is infected by a zombie virus by, like, tainted cafeteria food. Yeah, tainted chicken nuggets. It's... That's like something out of a... It's like a Saturday morning cartoon from the 90s. And, um, yeah. It, w- and, it would have been an episode of Bone Chillers is what it would have been. And, and, it's, hor- and it's horrifically gross. And, and I and think it, they're going for like a dead alive, kind of gleefully irresponsible, yeah. ultra-violent but thing. You, but you can tell the makers of that film just hate children. <laughs> and, I'm, I'm, and I'm uncomfortable watching Cooties because of the glee in which it takes in doing violence to children. I can appreciate that. This one still has the same kind of violent glee, but luckily the tables have turned this time around. Yeah. Where the adults are actually the villains this time around. Around. I think it would have read a lot stronger if uh, the protagonist were a, a young black woman mm-hmm. uh, or or a Jewish woman. Yeah, considering the yeah. way that the villains are white supremacists, probably yeah. would have had a lot more meaning. And mm-hmm. by probably, I mean definitely. But. but but still, watching a young woman get the better of these hateful older men is mm-hmm. still satisfying. And Lily Wilson is a really incredible young actor. Like she mm-hmm. really infuses that part with a lot more than I think many other performers could. Um, mm-hmm. Her like her her anguish is feels real. Her rage feels justified, mm-hmm. um, and she makes the transition between a lot of different extremes very elegantly. It's a mm-hmm. really really excellent performance. All right, and our last new release for the week, uh, Intuition, mm-hmm. which something tells me is a movie. Whitney, how's my intuition? Uh, uh, it sucks because it's not much of a movie. No. Uh- <laughs> Intuition is a prequel that I didn't know this okay. to a film called Perdida um, from 2018. Uh, it's an Argentinian cop thriller. Mm. And boy, howdy, is it the most boring, rote, predictable cop thriller you've seen this side of an episode of Law and Order. Law and Order episodes are more sophisticated than Intuition. Wow. Uh, it's about how the star of Perdida, who is uh, like this badass. 
policewoman. Policewoman. Yeah. Uh, it's essentially how she came to be. And she came to be because she knew a really cool dude who, cool. in the opening scene, it's like there's three cops rushing to the scene of a crime. And uh, it's like, and we get dialogue like, wait a minute, all the other cops in town are heading to the other site where the bad guy is hiding out. And the guy completely unironically says, no, man, I have intuition. He's over here. When he says intuition, <laughs> does the title of the movie just pop up like, bang! I, I I wish like yeah. it's sort of like insidious <laughs> just fills the screen. No, it's like no, I have cop instinct, and I'm gonna go to <laughs> this other place where this other guy might be hanging out. And uh, the young uh, the the policewoman ends up being hired by this badass rogues. You're a rogue. You're off the case. We can't predict you, Mister Boring Cop Man. Uh, policewoman is hired by the detective to look after that guy because he might have been responsible for the death of the guy who killed his wife, which he probably is, but maybe he isn't. And if he is, he's justified. And if he's not, it's really predictable. Um, and also there's like an ancillary crime plot that involves gangland and drugs. And okay. It doesn't sound very good. No, I was, I was like tuning out. I was like, I had to fight to not just sort of like thumb through Twitter. It's like... <laughs> Because there's subtitles. I actually have to pay attention. <laughs> and uh, Otherwise, it's the sort of thing where you can vacuum. Yeah. You, you can iron. Yeah. You can, you can knit. It, it's, it doesn't demand your attention. It, it is video wallpaper. That's a shame. It is not at all engaging. And worst crime of all, it's almost two hours long. <laughs> it's like, no. You don't <laughs> need that. Boring, at least be quick. You don't need that much time to be this predictable. At the very least, it had my favorite crime movie cliche, the wisecracking pathologist. Hey, uh, <laughs> what do they do in this one? They smoke <laughs> ah. and blow like blow smoke into an open body. Yes. That's, that's yeah. That's fun. Or is that something else? I don't remember. That's <laughs> happened a couple of times. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, I, I feel bad that I kind of wasted time with this one. It's like, uh, I, I had two hours. What films do I need to fill my fill the day with? Fill the week with? Sometimes you just take a chance and it pays off. Yeah. Sometimes I guess you end up with this. Sometimes you end up with intuition. <laughs> which, so your intuition to watch this film yeah. was bad. Again, it's not like an incompetent film. It's not an offensive film. It's offensive in how inoffensive it is. It's just there. Yeah. Like I, I saw a movie recently called Spencer Confidential with Mark Wahlberg. That was an offensive film. Mm. Mistreats its characters. Badly written. Uh, Winston Duke is in it. And he is... He has hardly any lines. Ugh. He just takes a backseat to Mark frickin' Wahlberg. You have Winston Duke, for God's sake. <laughs> He's an excellent actor. Point the camera at him. <laughs> He's in a cop movie. He's a big guy. He's really imposing. Just keep following that guy. Don't just have him say nothing and occasionally blow up a car. <laughs> well, Mark, War- Mark Wahlberg Wahlberg's all over the place. <laughs> that was an offensive movie. All right. Well, in- uh, intuition is just. <sighs> well, on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, which we do. We do rate our films on yeah. a scale uh, because uh, people asked us to. And, uh, we used to not do this at all, actually, because mm-hmm. we, we thought, now let's let the conversation drive itself. But what we found was at the end of the day, sometimes people were a little confused as to whether or not we liked something or mm-hmm. were recommending it. Like, sometimes it's pretty clear, like intuition, but sometimes it's like kind of in the middle. So we just wanted to have a scale to let you know. So mm-hmm. the scale goes thusly. We go from C- minus to C+, plus, where C is average. Most movies are average. C minus is below average. Not good, or possibly the worst thing ever. <laughs> Just anywhere in that realm, anywhere in the don't recommend it category. C minus. 
And then C plus is a definite recommendation. We either really, really like it, or we think it's the best thing ever, or something in between. Mm. That's C plus. I have a theory about what you're going to rate intuition, <laughs> but you tell me. Mm. What What is your intuition? Oh, my, well, if your intuition says C minus, you're correct. Hey, uh, yeah, I mean, boo! <laughs> I was right, but oh, that's too bad about the movie. Yay! I saw a bad movie. Uh, no, it's it's. Yeah, just b- bland, bland, bland movie. All right. Uh, Becky gets a big old C-plus from me. Very, very satisfying, violent revenge thriller. Very well produced. Everything about it works. Um, seriously, one of the best horror scores I've heard in a long, long time. Excellent <laughs> yeah, work. I, I believe the, the instrument they used is something called a pensalina. At any rate, what they're doing is they're hammering an electric guitar strings rather than plucking them. Interesting. That's how you get that sound. Cool. Um yeah, I give it a C plus too. I, I really enjoyed watching it. I think it's just just visceral, gory fun. Right, what about the high note? Uh, the high note is a C. Mm. It, it's kind kind of down the middle, but it is slick and it is enjoyable to watch. And uh, and the Tracy Ellis Ross character is really great, and she gives a wonderful performance. All right, how do you feel about Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, a low C plus, not a passionate C plus, yeah. but I think it it does go to. Uh, much richer territory than you would think a documentary of this ilk might. Yeah, if you're a horror fan, it's a definite C+. Mm. If not, eh, it's still give it a low C+. Yeah, it's I guess very well if, crafted. If it's you're very... not a Nightmare on Elm Street fan or unfamiliar with sort of... If you're not like somebody our age who grew up with a Nightmare on Elm Street, it might not hit as hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, but again, if you're a fan mm. of those movies or if you're not a fan mm. of, of a Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I actually highly recommend it. Um, it will make you look at the film and the people who made it, I think, in a more interesting light mm. uh, and certainly a more nuanced light. And I think it's what a documentary is supposed to do. So C plus for me. Right. Uh, let's see what we got here. I'm no longer here. I'm no longer here is a high C. Okay. Uh, the, about half the movie is kind of unsatisfying, but the parts that are are really, really fascinating. Mm. And it does have, yeah, it has this really kind of good, rich exploration of a very particular type of uh, microculture that we haven't seen in movies before. Okay. Uh, Shirley. Shirley. Um, also a C+. Hmm. I, I think I didn't like it quite as much as you. Okay. Uh, I did enjoy the sort of weird gallows humor of the movie. Mm. Uh, it, it skews into the abstract almost to its detriment at times, mm. and I, I don't understand why they had to make like female fertility an important part of the story. But apart from that, uh, Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg both give amazing performance. Uh, yeah, they're absolutely phenomenal mm. in it. It's worth seeing for them alone. I'm also giving it a C plus. Um, I actually think the way that it tackles a variety of women's issues mm. uh, by sort of peeling off the layers of Shirley Jackson's work and her life and finding commonalities is actually uh, very mm. rewarding. Um, if maybe some of them aren't necessarily as attuned to a real life, that's where the film's fictional elements comes in. It is not a biopic. Um, and I think the movie is very canny about how it plays with um, telling a sort of fantastical, you know, fake mm. version of Shirley Jackson's life along with the real stuff. So I think it's a really incredible motion picture. Uh, Tommaso. Tommaso, a, a C plus, a really fascinating a psychological study about the way grief and panic and anxiety can... Uh, essentially shape the world around you for better and for worse. Okay. And then lastly, The Vast of Night. Uh, I've already said this is one of, a lot of C pluses this week. Uh, this, week. This is one of my uh, one of my favorite films of the year. I really really love The Vast of Night. I cannot recommend it highly enough. C+. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a really imp- 
impressive low budget feature. I yeah, think this is. is the kind of movie more people should be looking at. I think we should keep a very close eye on these filmmakers because mm-hmm. they clearly have their own way of telling stories and it's a distinctive way. It is a very suave and effective way. Um, it is confident and assured and absorbing and really good. And there's nothing else out there like it right now. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing. Um, not lately, anyway. So, by all means, please check out The Vast of Night. I think you're going to like it a lot. Um, okay, those are the new releases. Nine, now, nine of them. Yes. No, no, eight of them. We're, on to, we're on to our ninth. Yes, <laughs> now we're on to our ninth. We're into the, the uh, critically acclaimed streaming club mm. is uh, where we, and while there are no movies in theaters, make a concerted effort to fill in the gaps in our home movie, in our, uh, in our movie-going knowledge, where Whitney and I, we watch a lot of movies, we've been watching movies constantly throughout our entire lives, and yet there's um, still a few things we haven't seen. Yeah. So every week we invite our patrons to vote on some films that one or both of us haven't seen yet. And in your wisdom, you, you chose the core. We chose action movies on Netflix. Yeah. Because there, there are some action movies that are maybe not considered classics, but uh, ones that maybe perhaps you, you should have seen according to whatever that abstract pop consciousness is dictating. Yeah, which is why Bad Boys 2 was on yeah. that. I'm trying to remember what else was on that. Hang on. One uh, of the Pokemon movies was on there. Yeah, uh, I thought that was uh, a slam dunk too. Yeah, I, I selected one of the Pokemon movies because I've... In case you hadn't caught wind of it yet, I've seen all the Pokemon movies to date. About 20-something of them, except for the newest one, which is a CGI reboot of Pokemon the first movie. Yeah. From I'm looking up on my notes. 1990-something. Something, 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 Surely our listeners would want to put us through that ringer. Yeah, because Whitney's they know Whitney's a fan and they know that I know almost nothing about it and it would have been kind of a interesting fish out of water thing for me. Nope, you chose the core. The core. And I think the reason why some people chose the core is that the core, although it was a big movie release when it came out in 2003, 2003, it came out. Uh it's not a film that people talk about very often. So when you hear if you're younger Mm-hmm. We're like very little when this movie came out and don't remember it, or maybe even so young that you don't remember it at all. Uh, and you hear that there was a sci fi disaster movie starring Hilary Swank, Stanley Tucci, Aaron Eckhart, Alfred Woodard, Delroy Lindo, DJ Qualls, and Bruce Greenwood. And that it is about what happens when the center of the earth stops spinning and they have to build a giant drill like. Machine to like drill into the center of the earth with a crew of people inside to jumpstart the rotation of the earth with nuclear bombs. Mm. You might say to yourself, What? That sounds amazing. And it was a big A production, too. Gigantic budget, big, high profile profile Mm -hmm. release. Wasn't a bomb, it just wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't a huge hit. No, it uh, it didn't make its money back. It cost uh, 85 million and it made 74. So mm. it was technically a bomb, but it wasn't like. John Carter, where everyone's talking about how much money they lost, they mm. just didn't make his money back. It was just kind of disappointing for everybody. But yeah, uh, this came right at the tail end of the big disaster movie boom of yeah. the turn of the century. Well, th- the late '90s uh, saw kind of a, a like an unbinding of special effects mm-hmm. somewhere in between 
like after Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. like Jurassic Park still has a lot of practical effects. It doesn't have a lot of CGI, but they worked real hard on that CGI and it still looks good today. It does. Um, then along, like uh, just a few years later, you had something like Independence Day where they're just sort of sneezing a bunch of digital effects at you in a big way that that and we hadn't seen in of, movies before. And there's still a lot of practical effects in that. A lot of yeah. model work is in that movie. But a well. lot of like the dog fighting and the ships and the lasers, mm-hmm. they, you know, the, the, the flying saucers are mostly CG. And yeah. uh, then, you know, the next year was Titanic. So we saw like this big, gigantic jump forward in uh, quality digital uh, special effects. Yeah. And this gave Hollywood kind of an excuse to resurrect the moribund disaster genre. The disaster genre, which had kind of always been a thing. Mm. Um, you can go back to at least the 30s and see films like in old Chicago and San Francisco, which were based on the real life disasters, mm-hmm. the big Chicago fire, the earthquake in San Francisco. And they bo- both of those movies climax with famous, well-known disasters, and it revels in the destruction oh, yeah. and the, the tragedy that... Befell all the the actual qualities of the film are mixed, and Old Chicago is actually quite bad. San mm-hmm. Francisco's not great, but it's better. And but the they just broke a bunch of shit and set mm-hmm. it on fire. <laughs> and it's an impressive. It's a it's spectacle. It's scale. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to see things like collapse without anyone actually being in danger in the theater. So there's always been a place for that. But in the 1970s, in particular, uh, through the works of Irwin Allen. Uh, there was a big resurgence in disaster as a, films. As a producer, by yeah. the way. Not, not necessarily director, but yeah. But yeah, there was a big resurgence of films like The Towering Inferno and Earthquake and The Poseidon Adventure. And these were all... It, what they were is they were visual effects spectacular. So you could see all these crazy visual effects about a giant like ocean liner turning completely upside down or a giant building on fire. But they would also be an excuse to get a lot of different big actors mm. like because they wouldn't have to carry the whole movie so you could get Fred Astaire for a week and he could film his entire bit and then Fred Astaire is like eighth build that's how big the cast is and yeah in the 90s we got a resurgence of that mm. thanks to stuff like Independence Day and then we started seeing more visual effects spectaculars like Twister I, I think Twister might have been the one that really kind of kicked off the disaster this new wave of disaster films in earnest mm-hmm. we had stuff like like Apollo 13 and uh, before that but Twister was very special effects based mm. and it is based on natural disasters it's based on twisters in fact Twister uh, is based on like nothing like there's no plot to twister to speak of no like it's about there's there's storm chasers they're chasing storms and that's what they do and there's there's kind of like bad guy storm chasers but they're not that bad they're just (laughs) they're just more well funded and they're kind of jerks there's no who was the bad guy was it carrie ellis yeah Yeah. and then and then the whole thing is like bill paxton is quitting being a storm chaser my we just had like a very short brownout and our, oh, my printer just turned right back on, so it's going to make some noises. Freaking out for a second. But, uh, yeah, but Bill Paxton is, like, trying to quit storm chasing, mm-hmm. but his ex-wife won't sign the divorce papers yet, so he's got to, like, storm chase with her to get her to sign the divorce papers. It's made by Helen Hunt. And that's it. Nothing else is in the movie. <laughs> the whole thing is, is like, oh, yeah, we're trying to find a way to, like, throw these things into a tornado. Cool. That's not a plot! 
That's just stuff that happens. The only reason people went to see that movie is because the tornadoes were cool. The tornado and, effects were really, really good. And yeah. they were. They're still pretty fucking cool, actually. Yeah. And there's a lot of variation. Yeah, following, following that, following Independence Day and Twister, we had stuff like Volcano and mm-hmm. the, the one-two punch of Deep Impact and Armageddon, oh, both you, about gigantic meteors. You skipped the one-two uh, punch of Dante's, Dante's Peak, Peak and, and Volcano. Volcano. Yeah, yeah um, It was... Uh, it was a... A fun time to be alive. Look, um, <laughs> some of them were fun. Some of them were fun. Most I, I of will, them were stupid. I will go. I will go to, to the plate for Titanic for sure. Yep. Uh, but you know, Godzilla was definitely in this tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Roland Emmerich Rise was definitely in this. Deep tradition. Deep Impact holds up better than most people. Most people. Uh, I haven't watched it for a while. I remember it, it being unsufferably corny. It is, but it's mm. not bad corny. I think it's actually oh, well. in the end. I think it's actually a little better than Armageddon. Yeah. But yeah. and a lot of people continued to try with like Roland Emmerich continued to try all, all the way up mm-hmm. until 2012, which is just as awful as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Day after tomorrow was fun. Day after tomorrow is fun because there's a scene where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is being chased by cold, yeah, like coldness. It's, it's chasing cold. him down a corridor, <laughs> and he outruns it. He outruns coldness. Like, I have yeah. to get to the fire, <laughs> and like the special effects of like the walls freezing as down the hallway as coldness is chasing after him. It's, brilliant! It's the stupidest shit. Absolutely uh, brilliant. I love every minute of the day after tomorrow. <laughs> it is. A, I do not have guilty pleasures, mm. but if I did, that would be one of them because that movie is dumb. You should feel. Guilty. But that's one of the reasons why I uh, like it. Yeah. Um, but, and and because of, uh, of 9-11, I think the taste for these kinds of disaster movies wore off pretty quick. Yeah, the idea of fun destruction mm. of, because almost all of these big disaster movies, a twister might be an exception, but a lot of them were based off of, oh, look at this thing that you like and watch it get destroyed. Volcano mm. is about watching L.A. like sink into lava. Mm. Uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon. You see landmarks from all over the world get like pummeled by tidal yeah. waves and shit. But and the, the biggest selling image of Independence Day was the explosion of the White House. Yeah, so, yeah. this was seen as escapist fun. And after 9-11, it just wasn't. Yeah. Like there's nothing, like no one's in the mood. Everyone thinks that's in poor taste because when you see that imagery, you're not thinking, oh, that would be weird. Mm. You're thinking, that yeah, that, could, that yeah. could happen and that's fucked up and mm. I don't want to see that. So, so, so yeah, this, this kind of like big uh, ensemble cast of... Uh, big Hollywood stars, you know, of various degrees of fame, gathering together to save the world from some gigantic natural disaster wasn't really what audiences in 2003 wanted. No, and they definitely didn't want it from the core, because the mm. core is also dumb. The, like, the, the other the natural is, disasters yeah. are actual natural disasters that now, could here, happen. Here's something the core, that, they had to make up some bullshit. Here's something we need to point out about this movie, these this genre of movies. They're all dumb. They're all, because they're based on special effects and because the cast needs to only communicate very base levels of, like, their character, the characters tend to be very, very broad in these movies. Mm -hmm. They tend to uh, fulfill very perfunctory functions in these movies because they don't all have big speeches or lines of dialogue necessarily. Mm -hmm. They just have a job Uh, to do. And they have to kind of step back and let all of the special effects technicians take over for great long periods. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to say there are exceptions. We've mentioned a few of them. Mm. But mostly you're right. This is what people come to expect. Mm. This is what people want from a lot of these movies. We want just a big dumb ensemble cast and a whole bunch of stuff blowing up and people out running stuff blowing up and the dog doesn't die. Mm. That's it. 
Boomer lives. Thank you, Boomer. Boomer was the dog from Independence Day. Yeah. Boomer jumps out of the way of an explosion. And people, I remember in the, I saw, I saw Independence Day in a movie in a theater five times. It was huge. Everyone I knew. Moment. Everyone I knew was it. And every single time the audience would go, yeah! Go, they, Boomer! And I'm like, they just killed like two billion people! But the Golden Retriever lived. It's so weird Will how that Smith's works. Golden Retriever survived. So fucking weird how that works. But, um... So yeah, the core comes along, and it feels like we've run out of all the good natural disasters. So they made one up. So they made one up, and the idea is that the Earth's core has stopped spinning. What would that do? Well, according to the core, everyone's pacemakers would immediately stop. That's the first thing. Mm. It's it, it deals with, uh, it like fucks with the magnetics on the The electromagnetic surface, field yeah. of the Earth would, would get fucked up. And um, it's one of those ones where, uh, as basically they realize the Earth has about a year to live. Mm. Because eventually we're not going to get protection from solar solar radiation and shit, and we're all going to die. So they have a year to find a way to save the Earth. But in the meantime, because it's a disaster movie, we need to keep having disaster stuff. And so they decide, they're going to be like, oh no, the, the solar radiation found one of the holes in the ozone layer. <laughs> and it's like God put a magnifying glass on San Francisco. And it's like Torches melting. Yeah. He's melting the Golden Gate Bridge. And every single time they do this, they cut to some random person we've never met before who's already having their worst day and then this shit happens and it's especially pissing me off every time they cut to a different country they'll go to like italy and they're doing like the most italian thing possible and on this, top of, this is something they they cribbed from roland emmerich oh they cribbed and and uh, armageddon did this as well mm. where we only we're only in italy for like a minute and a half so we got to get italy out of the way really mm. fast so we have everyone like slurping up pasta and those, wearing those little, shirts with horizontal stripes and shit they don't actually do but, that but, but they might as well also that's the shirts are france i think Shush. <laughs> You're mixing up your stupid cliché. My point is is that Americans don't know a lot about Europe. And, and on top of that, when we do cut to Italy, the like one family that we decide to zero in on, they're going to be our protagonist of the sequence, American tourists. <laughs> we can't even give Italy the dignity of having some Italians. <laughs> Hiring some Italian actors. So we keep cutting to that shit. But the main plot uh, involves Aaron Eckhart. He's an Earth's core scientist. There's a, you have to follow the expert. Yeah, that's true. That's 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 Independence Day all the way. We have to follow the satellite guy the entire way through. When this quake hits, it'll be felt on the East Coast. What? Thank you, Paul Giamatti. Thank in you. San Andreas. Yes. Which actually was not a bomb. No, in fact, actually, it was an enormous hit. It actually wasn't that bad. It's fine. It's entertaining. Yeah. It's stupid. But, um, like I said, the dumb genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fun. But dumb. So Aaron Eckhart has to like, and he does this incredible scene where he's got to like go in front of like the war room from Doctor Strangelove, and he's got to explain to a bunch of like military generals who are apparently all idiots, mm -hmm. and he's got to explain like what the Earth's core is and what happens <laughs> if we all die. So for, it's like for, okay. the, for the lay people in the audience. Oh, yeah, I know it's for, it's one of my favorite things is when you have to explain some like heady science fiction concept, and you know someone in the audience doesn't follow this genre. Or doesn't know a lot about science, so you got to make sure the people in the back get it. The most elegant one of these ever, Event Horizon. <laughs> when Sam Neill explains how, like, you open like a wormhole in space uh -huh. in Event Horizon using a like a magazine, it's it's a centerfold actually. Yeah, but like it's it's a piece of paper. And my point mm -hmm. is that it's 
very effective. Like, mm. that's pretty spot on. It's the only part of that movie I like, other than the production design. I know I'm in the minority on that. I know I'm, a lot of people a love big, that movie. I'm a big fan of Event Horizon myself. I think it myself, sucks. But... I've talked about it endlessly. Yeah. I'm not going to relitigate it again right now. But that scene is gangbusters. And Aaron Eckhart gets to do that by, like, opening up a peach and, like, showing you the pit, and that's the core. <laughs> and then he gets Stanley Tucci, who plays, like, a snooty scientist, mm. to, like, shoot fire at it. <laughs> like, they're at a fucking, like, they're at a fucking weird barbecue. Like, <laughs> here's your it, peach it, flambe. That sounds like satire, but th- this this is a totally earnest movie. Nothing satirical mm. about it. If it had been satirical, mm. if, like, someone like Lord and Miller had made this, yeah. and they knew that this is kind of dumb and we're just going to lean into it, might have worked. Mm. But instead, I think it was the the day after tomorrow, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone uh, were inspired to make Team America World Police when they saw that because they wanted to remake the movie with the same script, Mm -hmm. but replace all the actors with puppets. Because they thought it was the stupidest thing ever. If we just do it with puppets, people will see just how fucking stupid stupid all of this is. And of course, that as fun an experiment that would have been sadly they weren't able to do that thing no. so that they kind of skewed toward skewering michael bay with team america instead anyway uh so uh it turns out what can we do how can we save the earth well it well, turns out luckily that... we have a giant penis i mean not a penis it's definitely not a penis yeah. it's not phallic at all delroy lindo has been making a giant penis in the desert and this Which, penis can burrow through rock. He can make a gigantic laser drill. Yeah. And somebody else can make a gigantic, can withstand all the pressure in the world kind of shell for a gigantic phallic laser drill. Using a material called... Unobtainium! <laughs> yeah, they didn't invent that for Avatar. Unobtainium has been a go-to sci-fi MacGuffin for a while. If you need a fictional material that can do things that actual elements cannot, Unobtainium is the way to go. The thing, I like to think that the core is a prequel. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, yeah. in, in Avatar, they they say the word unobtainium compl- without a smirk at all. Yeah. They just call it unobtainium. Yeah. In this one, Delroy Lindo explains, I, I found this element and... I just I haven't had the chance to sort of come up with anything cleverer, so I just sort of and he kind of chuckles at himself. I just sort of call it unobtainium. Okay, here's make us all that the unobtainium you can well, find. Well, there's actually a good bit, and it's in mm. the and it's in the um, it's in the trailer. Mm. They were just like, uh, okay, so uh, how long would it take to make this thing for real? And he's like, I don't know, like maybe ten years. Well, could you do it in six months with like a hundred billion dollars? Will you take a check? Uh, uh, Oh, oh. (laughs) yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, I love Joel Orlando. I think he's a very good actor. He is. Um, Everyone in this movie is a good actor. Like, there's no bad actors in the cast. And, uh, yeah, Stanley Tucci, uh, he's asked to be at his Tucciest. He plays the... the the smarmy kind of smug guy who's always recording yeah. himself. Yeah, he's going to write a book, best-selling book about this, and he probably stole Delroy Lindo's work. And, mm. um, and yeah, he's a he's a piece of shit, but he's Stanley Tucci, and he knows how to play a piece of shit yeah. so that you actually enjoy watching him. And yeah, he's one of the best at that, one of the best and there's then, ever been. And I've always liked DJ Qualls. I think he's a, mm. a hilarious actor, mm. and uh, he plays... he. He was uh, in his 20s at this point, so he was like the young hotshot. He was like the hacker kid. Yeah. The, I like the scene where uh, they finally nail him because he's been like hacking into government systems. He's like from the movie Hackers. Yeah. Even though it's 2003. I and think that he kind even of thing says was, hack the planet at one point. I don't recall that part. I think but, he did. But there's a great bit where uh, he like a... a like CIA spook is standing next to him. He snatches his phone out of his hand and just sort of like tinkers with it for a minute and says, here, you have unlimited minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's how good he is. 
And the whole and thing his, is his job is to keep all the news of this natural disaster off the whole internet. Yeah, they put him in charge of the internet. And <laughs> what he asks for in return is a lifetime supply of hot pockets and Xena Warrior Princess videos. Mm. Yeah. I remember when I was when this movie was coming out, in the trailers he doesn't say Xena videos, he says Star Trek videos. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wonder why they changed that. Um, I don't know. Thought it played funnier. Xena is funnier. Yeah, Xena's a little funnier. Yeah. Um, they're both things you could get. I would pick something you can't get. Like, mm. I want all of the lost episodes of Doctor Who. I know they're in a bunker somewhere. Like, I would have played with it. Like, the end of yeah. Sneakers or something. Well, you know? keep in mind, this was 2003. This was uh, just when TV series were being released on DVD for the first time. A lot of shows yeah. weren't available yet. The idea of having an entire season of television on your shelf or at the ready was a novelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever did have an entire season of TV, it took up several shelves. If you ever saw the Highlander TV oh, series it's like, box it's set, the whole bookshelf. It, yeah, it was like yeah, 30 huge. VHS. That, that, like you put them all next to each other and they like formed a picture. Yeah, you could always see that at Suncoast Video. You know, mm. you could never see that in anyone's house because it was too expensive. Yeah, people wouldn't get that so shit. It was hard to get an entire TV series. Clearly, it was a fan. Okay, if you had it, you taped it off TV. It's probably not the greatest quality. Mm-hmm. If you are a computer hacker who likes to stay inside and watch a lot of genre TV, that is sort of a holy grail. In 2000, in 2003. Well, more like late 90s. Well, I was about to say yeah. 1997, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any They're case. still playing with that cliche. In any case. Uh, and also rounding out the team, uh, we get uh, Hilary Swank, who plays an astronaut, who at the beginning of the film uh, is making re-entry with, uh, with uh, Bruce Greenwood, who's her senior officer. And uh, their Earth is not where it's supposed to be because the axis isn't spinning. So they were supposed to like emerge like in the ocean or something. And now they're like right over right, Los Angeles, right towards downtown Los Angeles, because it's that kind of movie. And Hillary Swank has the brilliant idea to land the ship in the L.A. River, which mm. if you've ever been to L.A. or seen a movie is a small trickle of water in a vast concrete ravine. Well, except when it rains, when it becomes like hell yeah it turns into hell on earth and it overflows they had to build that that ravine for that little tiny trickle for when it rains because it was wiping out the city (laughs) i know it's just funny though you look at it like that's the la river like trust us it's a thing it's no it's it's a thing go go a little further up and that's and movies have been shooting action sequences and that thing since the dawn of time i mean that since before they even built the concrete ravine before they invented concrete concrete they had grease was being filmed um so she's a hotshot astronaut who's going to learn a valuable lesson, blah de blah de blah And uh, then they and get... She, in... She's the, the hero, like kind of a cypher character. But they, very, very well-rounded. But they, they tell her, like, oh, one day you're going to have to deal with failure because there's going to be something that your hotshot, you know, crazy techniques can't deal with. And, of course, that's what happens. Halfway through the movie. Halfway through this over two-hour movie, they finally get in the drill. Mm. And they go into the center of the earth. And then the second half of the movie takes place in the center of the earth where there are no lava people. Let me explain something to you. <laughs> or, or underground pockets with dinosaurs in them. I didn't see this movie when I came out. And in 2003, I would see literally everything that came out. All right, I was, in college, yeah. I was in college and the only disposable income that I had went to seeing movies every single week. I would see three or four movies in a theater every single week. Didn't matter what it was, hmm. because I was stupid and I didn't save any of my money, and now I kind of regret it. But my point is, I saw everything, but I never saw the core. And I never saw the core because I knew that there was no 
fucking way that what that movie actually was would live up to the movie I had written in my head. Which had lava people in well, it. Well, of course it had lava people in it. Okay, and your, it your turns movie out, is even stupider. And it turns out, the big twist is that uh, at the end of the movie, we find out that the person on the team who prevented the, who actually stopped the Earth's core in the first place, which is something that actually does happen in the movie, but the person on the team who did it was DJ Qualls. And the reason why DJ Qualls did it was because he wanted those Hot Pockets and Xenotapes. Now... That, that's the mo- that's and of course, the plot of the movie. And that's at the center motivation. of the movie, and at the center of the Earth, it all boils down to DJ Qualls has killed everyone on the mission, except for Hillary Swank, and there was a sword fight at the center of the Earth with lava people cheering him on and shit, and it would have been awesome! Now, Only one of those things happens. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I am a little disappointed. But it does know, turn out that Stanley Tucci I'm, is responsible for stopping the center I'm, of the Earth. <laughs> I'm really glad uh, you didn't write this movie because uh, that's look the movie we got is plenty dumb. Oh, it's very I'm, dumb. I'm, I'm going to defend it for uh, just being a big dumb flick that it is. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and I think it's actually perfectly genial. I'd rather watch the core than sort some of the the technically better films that came before it. Uh-huh. Roland Emmerich's movies are kind of painfully corny. This one is a little bit. I can't say more earnest, but uh, I think it's it's. Its thrills are a little bit better earned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second half of the movie, they go down to the center of the Earth and they run into a variety of things like giant blocks of, di- of uh, diamond mm. that they can't drill through and they have to navigate around. And uh, Of course, it all starts coming to a head the closer to the center of the Earth that they get and there comes the point where in order to survive, Delroy Lindo has to have like a spacewalk but like in a room that's 9,000 degrees and he makes it for a while, <laughs> which is ridiculous because he would basically explode as soon as he opened the door. That's insanely hot. But he gets to walk around for a while mm-hmm. and then turn a big crank and then have like a brief moment where he talks to someone and then like he they, dies. They, they forgot that it's not in space. Well, they forgot that heat is hot. They forgot well, that 9,000 degrees would melt anything. A, a big plot point is they need to make the shell out of this unobtainium to withstand the enormous pressure of being down that deep in the earth. Yeah. You can't just get out. You yeah. Well, he's inside the thing, but it's like it's like exposed and it's super mm. fucking hot and he should die. He mm. should die right away. It's a stupid plot point. And, and th- also, I was a little upset that they didn't go to the core of the earth. Mm, they like, never actually like, get there. They don't actually like go dig all the way down to the very center of the earth. Mm. They actually go I think it's pretty. It's shallow. It's only, it's like less than halfway, I think, to, yeah. toward the center, and that's like where they drop. Well, because the, bombs the core and... isn't the problem. It's the stuff around the core that's yeah. supposed to be spinning. I get that. Uh, the core, so, but is... the mantle doesn't have the same zip. The core hmm. is considered by many scientists to be the least scientifically accurate <laughs> movie in history for oh, yeah. a lot of these reasons. Yeah. A lot of these reasons. So, Neil deGrasse Tyson, what do you got? Oh, my God. Um, okay, let's see here. Uh, um, let's... Oh, Jesus. Where do you even fucking begin? Well, for one thing, you can't walk around in 9,000 degree heat. I think that's... Mm. <laughs> that's a big one. That's a pretty big one. The idea of being able to construct... I, look, I understand it's a sci-fi fantasy movie. And constructing a ship that can burrow very quickly to the core of the Earth is completely ridiculous. And there's actually, like... Uh, um, there's actually, like, John... Uh, I think John Rogers did a rewrite on the script, and I saw a thing where he was defending it. Like, listen, 
I had to talk to them out of dinosaurs. Ice. <laughs> you need to cut me some fucking slack, okay? All right, all right. I tried real hard no, to make this no. as accurate as I could. I, I could, when I, I did see this in theaters, and I could not get my mind around the imagery of this gigantic phallic ship, like, plunging deep and, and like, essentially fucking the Earth. Yeah. Uh, because they, they, the way they have to get it down to the center of the Earth is they have to drop it uh, from a, a great height down into the ocean, down to the deepest part of the ocean, which is closest to the core of the Earth. You know, mm-hmm. get a head start. And that happens to be the Mani- Mariana Trench, which, of course, you know, is just now rife with vaginal imagery. Of so course. this big phallic machine diving into the Earth's vagina, essentially. And I'm thinking either I'm either I'm being punked or this film is not acknowledging something. Uh, I would yeah. love to talk to the screenwriter to say, you know... what. What sort of imagery are you putting into this movie, this gigantic phallic shit? Yeah, you can look online. A lot of the things that are just not scientific mm-hmm. accurate are not fun. Like, you know, like, oh, all the birds wouldn't know how to migrate without the magnetic field. Apparently, yes, they would. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they escape, like, through a tectonic plate near Hawaii. There isn't one of those. Um, yeah, apparently like, everything that they say would happen if the Earth's core stopped. Apparently none of that shit would happen. Oh, our entire atmosphere is going to dissipate because the Earth's core stopped. Apparently that would not happen. Like all the whole movie is built on dumb. Like there's nothing well, about it that's of... like. Usually you start with a what if, uh-huh. and then you say what then. Uh-huh. Here the what if is so bad that the what then is crossed out, and instead what you've written is it's going to be stupid. No. I... To be uh, to to elucidate a little bit further, a lot of these disaster movies, you know, not something like Independence Day, but like something like Twister, mm-hmm. they would actually hire some sort of expert, like an actual yeah. scientist, to consult on the script or consult on the production. They would ignore everything they said, but they'd hire somebody. Yeah, they wanted uh, to look good at least. Yeah, they I wanted wanna... and it's like what would it, what would it look like if a meteor this size actually hit the Earth at this time, and you know, what, what would be some of the consequences that a mainstream audience might not know about. Yeah, I've worked for in like development like a couple mm. of times like internships and stuff like that and mm. every single time I was asked, "Hey, I want you to call around with a bunch of people who are like zoologists and things and talk about what what would happen if you had to like fight off a tiger." Yeah. or something. And every single time it would come back with an answer, like here's what the scientists say, here's what the tiger trainers would say, here's mm. what everyone says. And every single time the producers just said that's stupid. We're not doing that. We'll make something up. Yeah. The, <laughs> like, what are we, then who cares if it doesn't matter? Yeah, the, the truth of the matter was always way less interesting than whatever sort of salacious screenplay that they had in exactly. mind. But, um, but yeah, so the core, they, I'm sure they might have had people that they asked, but then they did something stupid anyway. Uh, the visual effects range from pretty fucking bad to semi-respectable. Like you're not gonna it's, you're not gonna put it on to, you're not gonna put it on your big screen to test out your like your your wonderful sound equipment now so it's it's not even a great spectacle it is, it is a Hollywood A production they mm-hmm. put a lot of money into it it's it's slick slick enough yeah it it doesn't have the same sort of sheen as something like a Roland Emmerich film it's not quite as big as that mm-hmm. but it has the same it's facing the same direction I'll say this I wasn't offended. Like, there's nothing about it that made me just want to punch everyone involved because this is the worst thing ever. This cliche is really ugly. Mm. Or, it's all just kind of rote and stupid. Yeah. And it, there's a certain charm to that. I'm it, not going to lie. It's following like, this, a lot of, a lot not, of trends at the time. It's uh, it was, bad, but it's not painful. Yeah. It, this was directed by a, a filmmaker named John Amiel, who um, 
has only made one film since uh, The Core. He made a, a little sort of small indie biopic called Creation about Charles Darwin. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he uh, he's actually worked with a lot of different kinds of genres. Uh, he's done a few uh, respectable, pretty good movies. He's never done like an outright classic. Uh, he's probably the of... best thing I think he's ever done is the movie Copycat, which yeah. is an amazing serial killer thriller. It's a serial like, killer really movie good. where Harry Jr. plays a serial killer. Yeah. It came in the way. It's one of those films that came in the wake of The Silence of the Lambs. And it so it feels out... a lot like it. And Copycat came out one month after Seven, so people just oh, yeah. weren't super interested, which is the yeah. same because it's Copycat it holds is, up. is it's pretty really good. good. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver plays the the detective who actually has a very acute agoraphobia and yeah. actually can't go out. And face the killer. He made a surprisingly uh, good, like people don't talk about it, mm-hmm. but a really quite funny Bill Murray comedy called The Man Who Knew Too Little. That's a good movie. That's funny. That's a good movie. People it don't was, talk about it, it, was, really it was trashed funny. at the time just because it looked so silly, and it is silly, but it's actually really quite good. The premise of that one is Bill Murray plays uh, kind of a slug relative to a guy living in England, and in order to get him out of a f- some sort of uh, family gathering, yeah. they hire a live theater company mm-hmm. to take him around town, and he plays the lead role in this sort of like interactive theater experience where like he's going to be a spy story but the gag is he ends up he getting mi- swept up in an actual yeah, he, spy he, thing he misses the theater company and goes and like thinks he's doing theater when it's an actual spy thing yeah so it's so the entire time he's completely unflappable and bemused by everything and everyone around him is doing these life or death situations and they're in awe of how calm and collected yeah. he is <laughs> like he's joking around and Bill Murray can make that joke work for an hour and a half it's it works. Mm. It's a funny, genuinely funny moment. He also did Entrapment, which was kind of a hit in 1999. It's not a good movie, though. No, it is no, not. Entrapment is not good. No, but it had Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones at a time when it was a good get. They, you know? And, and the, like the final, it's a heist movie, and the final heist is essentially they steal all the money in the world. <laughs> like, like It's like we're going to break into the bank and we're going to steal like $500 billion each. It's like, okay, what are you going to do with $500 billion that you can't do with a couple million? You know, it's, I don't know. Well, I, Invest. I, I, in what they just stole all the money. What are they going <laughs> to buy? You're going to give it back to yeah. everyone's going to have to make their case for why they need it back. Elon Musk shows yeah. up. Fuck you. It's and, it's it's not like in sneakers where they're going to like redistribute it or anything. They're just going to keep it for themselves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, interesting career, John Emil. Uh, and this is not his most prestigious work. It's kind of fun. Roger Ebert defended this movie to the death. He thought this movie was fun. And good for him. It is fun. Uh, I I remember reading a book and it was a really kind of classy book that was a a collection written by a lot of like high high profile and very classy uh, critics and authors from around the world. It was one of those 1001 moments from movies that you need to know about. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it reached into like some some pretty obscure films and, you know, little tiny moments from a Pottergito were in there, mm-hmm. but also, you know, the shower scene in Psycho, things you do yeah. know. Uh, and uh, the core was one of was in this book. Yeah, this, this, this I is, read about this. Yeah, the, 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 this actually has this the uh, scene at the beginning where they land the space shuttle in the L.A. River to kind of has this Los Angeles plays itself quality of how Los Angeles is looking at itself and constantly casting itself in these big disaster movies where the very geography of the city itself is the thing that will rescue it. And that we have the L.A. River sort of set up this way is really specifically kind of... For specifically shuttles. for space shuttles. You know, and, I want to you know think that's I, fun, but I don't. I read that, at the, the brief essay that was next to that, and I'm convinced <laughs> that, that the core is actually a really fun, dumb disaster film, and I do prefer it to something like 2012. Oh, 2012 was 
terrible. I'll give yeah. you that. 2012 is another one where like Oliver Platt is treated like this horrible bad guy, and Oliver mm. Platt's kind of right yeah. <laughs> about everything. Like he's not really wrong about yeah. stuff. S- San Andreas is a worse movie than The Core. 2012 is a worse no, movie than The Core. No, no, no. San Andreas is better. Mm-hmm. I think San Andreas is is a more competently produced as a spectacle. And I, I like know, the character. The, the, the Paul Giamatti speech, though, man. Day After Tomorrow is better than The Core because at least goes full dumb. No, yeah, like, goes as true. dumb as it possibly can, and I respect that. Mm. Um, I like it's like basically New York freezes over, and the first thing that happens, full of wolves. <laughs> Just wolves everywhere. <laughs> wolves are like trying to like do like a home invasion of the New York Public Library, mm. and they're trying to pick like which books is okay to burn. Mm. Like, it's so fucking funny. Oh, there's a big one. This is a Gutenberg Bible. You do not burn this. <laughs> but it's a treat. I Seriously, that movie's it's, fun. Uh, it, it's stupid. It's really stupid. But it's fun. Core is the same flavor of stupid. It's just a, a lighter lighter confection. Okay, fine. Mine is rich in chocolate. <laughs> uh, anyway, that and, is and, it. And the, the fact that it is not at all scientifically accurate kind of adds to its charm a little bit. Right, anyway, that's it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, who... Uh, who everybody who joined us, everybody who subscribes, especially every single one of our patrons. Uh, next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, we asked our patrons to vote uh, for classic movies that are now on HBO Max. Uh, HBO Max released their streaming service a couple of weeks ago. We were going to highlight it last week, but, you know, we had to delay it. Um, and uh, I will say this for HBO Max. They have a very respectable classic section. Mm, like, it's, okay. it's not totally comprehensive, but it's better than most other streaming services it goes like criterion collection to hbo max like that's that it's like one down it's really a rather good set so uh, we wanted to highlight some of the films on there and the films that are and the film that our patrons wanted us to watch was my dinner with andre mm-hmm. which i've never seen and i'm really excited because it's one that i've always been to get around to okay uh my dinner with andre is a louis mall film about a guy who has dinner with Andre. That's it. That's the whole movie. And it's, it's, considered a conver- one of the, it's a conversation. And it's it considered, takes place at a table. It's two guys talking. And it's considered one of the best movies of the 1980s, which is saying a lot. That was a really good decade for mm. cinema. So uh, I'm very, very excited about this. We will also be uh, looking at the new Spike Lee movie, The Five Bloods. Uh, that's it, right? That's the title? The uh, Five Bloods. Yeah, okay. Mm. Uh, and that will be on Netflix uh, starting next week. And we'll also review some other stuff. Besides, there's always a ton of influx of things on VOD and various other streaming services. It's a little hard to keep track of them all, but we'll review more than that. Mm. Um, also, stick around. we got a bunch of other stuff here on the channel. Uh, we just did uh, an episode of Episode Zero talking about the origin of the Wilhelm Scream, which turned out to be a uh, rather deep episode. Uh, we've got an uh, upcoming Cancel Too Soon episode about Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. <laughs> uh, we've got We've Got Mail makes its triumphant return on Wednesday. We've got other stuff as well. We're doing Casablanca on episode zero later this week. And over at the Patreon, we've got new episodes of uh, our Firefly reviews, our Star Trek reviews. We're going to have our latest episode of Not on Disney+. Plus. Uh, coming out later this week, talking about the mostly forgotten TV movie Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme, uh, with an all-star cast, including uh, Shelley Duvall and Debbie Harry and ZZ Top, and, uh, and everybody else. Everybody like oh, and the Little Richard. Uh, well, what made us think of it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very weird film. It is a very, very. I, I had to turn it off after half an hour because I was overstimulated. <laughs> like, it was too much. 
It was like watching Pee Wee's Playhouse on Fast Forward. Like, it was mm. crazy. So, we'll be talking about that uh, pretty soon as well. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to get access to all that exclusive stuff, it's patreon.com slash Network. If you want to email us about any of the stuff we talked about in this week's episode or anything else at all, you have questions about the industry, film history, want recommendations, or if you want to talk about something completely unrelated, we're open books, uh, you write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, and we might read your letter on We've Got mail Woo. I got through it all you thank did it it's all there <laughs> thank you everybody for joining us on this epic episode again uh, be responsible be safe if you can protest but be safe while you're protesting if you can't protest donate sign petitions do everything you can we're at a very critical point right now and uh, we support every single person who's out there trying to make a difference thank you so much for everything that you do and never forget everyone is a critic to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?